Hello, hello, everybody. Today we have my man, my friend, a guy who I've learned a lot from over the years, uh, Jamie Wheel. Jamie Wheel was the co-author of the book Stealing Fire, which, if you haven't read, is an absolute game changer. Really centered around altered states of consciousness, uh, stemming back from the Eleusinian mysteries in ancient Greece, where they would drink uh, Kikion a brew known to contain some organic forms similar to that of LSD or acid. Uh, and every one of the greats from ancient Greece, from Plato to Aristotle, Socrates, uh, along with some of the ancient Egyptians, would all gather once a year to consume this be- beverage in the darkness. And um, shit, I'm forgetting the temple right now. But uh, they bridged that gap all the way to... Um, modern combat and warfare with the Navy SEALs and special ops and how they work to attain cohesiveness and flow. So everything from the altered states of psychedelics to the altered states of timelessness in action, uh, featuring friends and, and, uh, people that have been on the show, you know, guys like Laird Hamilton and different extreme sports athletes who find that the more pressure they have on themselves, the more they must be dialed in. Uh, It was an incredible book. We don't even dive into that in this episode. I think we talk about it very briefly. This episode is a long one. And the reason for that is I wanted to extract as much as possible from Jamie. Uh, We did this a couple months back in my house and we took a deep dive into his next book, which uh, I know we, we, we mentioned the dates coming up. It is a ways out, but the beautiful thing about Jamie is that he understands podcasts and You know, it's not every time I have a guest on who's an author who wants to give away a lot of the main takeaways from his book. A lot of people think the more they talk about it, um, the less you'll actually want to buy the book. And that's completely absurd. You know, the more you give, the more people want. And, you know, certainly in a two hour conversation, Jamie's just scratching the tip of the iceberg here with what he's getting into. This conversation is centered really around relationships and sex and sex in particular for higher states of consciousness, which um, I've read about to be perfectly honest, have never, I've experienced it at times in particular. um, If my wife and I at the end of a mushroom ceremony were able to connect sexually, uh, that was blast off, you know, like it has to be in this right (laughs) It can't be at peak experience. It has to be in the tail end of the experience, but um, a feeling of complete oneness and unity. And that is accessible with or without substance. Um, But what's great is Jamie gives many different entry points uh, based on what you're comfortable with. And you, you may find, you know, as a man or a woman, you're more comfortable with experimentation than your partner is. And that's okay too, because there's ways to bridge that gap and there's something for everyone. Um, you know, he gives a, uh, I forget the, the terminology that he used because we did do this a couple months ago, but he gives like a, a, a very low hanging fruit entry point all the way to the, the high end, you know, the equivalent of a microdose of, of mushrooms all the way to the 30 grams of penis envy experience. I mean, he has, and, and obviously that's uh, just using a loose analogy, he's not recommending anybody has that kind of amount of mushrooms before having sex, but he gives a very detailed approach to how to achieve these altered states of consciousness and really bridges a gap between in the East with the tantric practices and in the West with sex magic. 
And I was blown away. I mean, absolutely blown away. I know I've said that before, but this is one that I've been holding on to. Because um, in, in many ways, it's not necessarily specific to the times. There's a lot going on in the world. And there's a lot going on in my world. I mean, any single day now, we will be um, giving birth to our daughter. And I say we because I'm a part of the experience. But my wife will be giving birth to little wolf here today, tomorrow, the next day, uh, by the time you listen to this, she may already be here. Um, so there's a lot going on in my world and, and externally, there's a lot going on in the world. And for each one of us as individuals in times like this, yes, there's a lot going on internally as well as externally. Um, so it was kind of odd for me in terms of selecting when this one comes out simply because there's at times I want to be pertinent to the current conversations going on and at other times you know, I released an episode that was recorded months before anything. And it's, and it's like, well, this has nothing to do with that. But then again, I think it's nice to take a break from uh, the consistency of whatever the mainstream media is. And not that I'm mainstream media, but just a break from the consistency of the current conversations. And so this is a conversation that is timeless. And I don't mean ours in a specific, um, you may call it that, that would be lovely, but the conversation around heightened states of awareness and in particular, the divine union, in particular with our partners um, for sacred states of consciousness and the ability to level up. And a lot of that may seem airy-fairy or woo-woo talk uh, to people who aren't familiar with um, the deeper waters of psychedelics. But once again, you know, Jamie bridges the gap. So it's not like you have to jump in to the deep end right away. Um he gives many avenues for which you can start to experience and work towards a much better sex life at the very least and at the very most, a complete merging of oneness with your partner and achieving um, a greater degree of healing, a greater degree of awareness, a greater degree, there we go, <laughs> a greater degree of consciousness. Um, I'm not going to say much more on that episode other than thank you guys so much for tuning in and uh, please check out our sponsors. They definitely make this show possible. And there's a lot of businesses that are struggling right now. Your business may be struggling as well due to the current climate of the world. But at the same time, um, podcast sponsorships are one of the ways that these companies stay alive. So please support these guys. This episode is brought to you by Grass-Fed Intestines with Tripe by Ancestral Supplements. Ancestral Supplements makes New Zealand source nose-to-tail organ meats, bone marrow, and intestines in simple, convenient gelatin capsules. According to the great John Fire Lame Deer, and I know I've, I've, I've said this pretty much every week, but his book, Lame Deer, Seeker of Visions, is one of my favorite books on Native American wisdom, um, covering really everything from what life was like uh, prior to mass genocide, prior to... Uh, a complete uprooting of culture. And, you know, I think there's a lot of that in the collective consciousness right now uh, among many different groups of people without question. Um, but this is a, a beautiful tale of what his life was prior um, to, you know, white people influence. And then, of course, during it. And uh, he has a beautiful way with words. Also, pretty damn funny. He doesn't pull punches. And, uh, you know, I mean, look no further than this quote. He said that, let's see here. In the old days, we used to eat the guts of the buffalo, making a contest of it. Two fellows getting a hold of a long piece of intestines from opposite ends started chewing towards the middle, seeing who can get there first. That's eating. Those buffalo guts full of half-fermented, half-digested grass and herbs. You didn't need any pills and vitamins when you swallowed those. 
I mean, this guy does not pull punch in his book. I, I highly recommend it. As far as the supplement goes, intestines, stomach, and tripe, and other gelatinous parts provided concentrated amounts of connective tissue, undenatured collagen, and probiotics, as well as other gut-specific proteins that are now absent from the modern diet. This is something my wife and I take every day now. She's been taking it in pregnancy. I find it to be absolutely essential. Um, and having a buffalo harvest over at uh, Rome Ranch, you know, we could see just how much of this wonderful native grass is within their gut lining. And the buffalo is a sacred and incredible animal. Um, so lots here, you know, this is, this is of course from, from 100% grass-fed, grass-finished cattle. They have a ton of good stuff over at ancestralsupplements.com slash Kyle. You'll get 10% off everything you order there. So check those guys out. We are also brought to you today by my good friends, Alex and Sarah, who have been on the podcast before. Check out that episode. These guys have a, uh, a wealth of knowledge. They're Czech level practitioners, high level practitioners from the Czech Institute, and they're offering all sorts of stuff right now in their coaching. But the bottom line is they're going to help you achieve gradual inner awakening that fortifies a higher standard of conscious awareness in all aspects of your life. That's a big piece to chew on. Uh, in your coaching with them, you will create a conscious awareness around your thoughts and emotions by maintaining alignment with your values and highest self. You will become the source of strength and inspiration to others during challenging times and crisis because you are grounded and centered. You will learn how to think and plan ahead so you can be proactive and self-sufficient during these times. We will provide an abundance of resources to assist you with accessing healthy food, gardening, sustainability practices, EMF protection, the latest information on immunizations, and anything that interrupts our liberties to make choices in these areas. You will learn techniques for relaxation and meditation and how to use creative visualization as a tool to achieve your goals and balance decisions. Your health and performance will become aligned with harmonious relationships and occupational fulfillment because your authentic expression flows naturally through all of your bodies, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Uh, I'm linking to what they're offering in the show notes. It's um, primalfusionhealth.com slash E3 slash Kyle, and you're going to get some free stuff there, three free videos to check out, and a fat discount on their private coaching should you feel so inclined. So definitely check out Alex and Sarah at Primal fusionhealth.com slash e3 slash kyle which i'll link to in the show notes we're also brought to you by my dudes at one farm one farm is making the very very best in cbd products they start with a 100 usda certified single origin farm out in colorado where they take the best hemp organically grown and they use 100 co2 extraction to bring you some of the best full-spectrum CBD products on the planet. Uh, the tincture, as I mentioned before, is something that I, Bear, and Tosh use consistently every single day. It's full-spectrum. It tastes phenomenal. They don't add any nasty uh, sweeteners or anything like that. It is simply cinnamon flavor or lemon flavor, 100% natural, 100% organic, with MCT oil as the base. It's ketogenic. It's phenomenal. And they have night serums and facial creams, with which my wife loves. So lots of good stuff there over at onefarm.com slash Kyle, and you get 15% off everything in the store. So make sure you check out their great products. We're also brought to you by Paleo Valley. These are the guys who make the amazing beef sticks I was talking a bit about. They have an apple cider vinegar complex, which as many of you know, apple cider vinegar is incredible. And there's a ton of clinically proven benefits here. 
But basically, by taking these encapsulated, you get all of the healing properties of apple cider vinegar into a daily diet without the fuss or the burn. And ACV can be a little hard to choke down, so I'm a huge fan of these. Uh, it's been shown to support with digestion, breaking down of proteins or amino acids for better absorption, improving the blood sugar response, and supporting with satiety and craving. So this is a big one for me. Uh, I've talked about my genetics before. My wife mirrors that. Aubrey Marcus mirrors that. No coincidence. Um, but basically, we we have diabetes in our family. We have the genetics uh, for type 2 diabetes. We have the genetics for obesity. Now, you'll never see that in us because of our food choices. But if I want to throw caution to the wind and eat a heavy carb meal, like say it's a sushi night or something like that, apple cider vinegar prior to that meal has been shown to curb the blood sugar response. Um, it's also been shown to improve high blood sugar, reduce heart disease risk. And uh, what else we got here? The um, component, let me see if I get this right. Chlorogenic acid component also seems to prevent LDL from oxidizing, which is a key factor in developing of heart disease. Um, lots of good stuff here. So bottom line is if you don't like choking down apple cider vinegar in its raw form, you can get it encapsulated from these guys over at paleovalley.com slash Kyle, and you're going to get a big discount. So check these guys out. Also, I'm linking to everything in the show notes. So once again, you don't have to take notes here. Just look to click in the show notes and you will get all of the discounts from Ancestral Supplements to my boys at One Farm, to Alex and Sarah, as well as Paleo Valley. And without further ado, my man, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Jamie Wheel is in the house. So I had started this book, uh, Center of the Cyclone, a while ago when I was getting into microdosing acid in the float tank. And somebody was like, have you heard of John Lilly? And I was like, isn't that the guy that invented float tanks? And they're like, yeah, well, he was uh, a pretty good, I mean, a, a fairly uh, explorative psychonaut himself. And so somebody recommended that book, one of the owners of uh, a float tank that I was using out in the Bay Area. And I go through it and it was like, oh, this is incredible. He was a medical doctor and he had prescription um, LSD from Sandoz Labs. He was homies with Hoffman. Mm-hmm. So he'd, he'd shoot intravenously 300 micrograms of LSD and then float in his first custom-made float tank for 12 hours. Whew. And he has some of the craziest trip reports, like you know DMT-level trip reports, but for 12 hours. And he gets through all those. And what was cool is I have this bookmark in here. It's a dollar bill. And... I just felt called the other night to grab the book. I was like, huh, I wonder why I stopped reading this. And I get to a point and it's on the mapping of heaven and hell. And I recall why I stopped reading it. Cause I was like, I'm just interested in the trip reports. I've never been to hell. Who cares about that? But after 30 grams of penis envy and the infinite <laughs> loop of hell, I was like, this is actually very pertinent information. And it's really to map, um, it's to map how we can get to those states of uh, heaven or hell in everyday waking consciousness or in the psychedelic realm. And so I find it very uh, curious and fascinating to finish this book now. So it's at the top of my list. And then I have, of course, some other ones I'm working on as well. Beautiful. Yeah, brother. It's a never ending story. It's funny how the soul guides you to different books at different times and pieces of it. You know, you, you get through halfway and you're like, ah, I think I'm done. And then three years later, you're like, oh no, I need to read this now. Yeah. One thing I remember stumbling across in Lily's was just, and this was late fifties, 
I mean, so on point, but he's just like, hey, under LSD, there is a heightened kinesthetic awareness. And so the ability to to stretch, to move, to repattern, you know, kinesthetic programming. Yeah. Um, it was, because, you know, what, what is this book? One of them is like metaprogramming in the human biocomputer. Yes, yes. And just, I just, you know, randomly cracked open the page and it was right there, this exact descriptor. Because for me, any kind of high state um, experiences are wildly embodied in kinesthetic. You know, like the very first thing I feel like doing is working out the kinks and stretching and opening, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, on, and there's very little just passive cogitating to be done. You know, I'd rather roll, I'd rather do everything yeah. in an embodied sense. And it feels like sort of like you're, you're getting your sort of spidey senses on. I've been getting that way with psilocybin, not at the 30 gram dose. That was just out of body the whole time. But, you know, with, with uh, both the 10 gram and eight gram experiences that I've had recently with penis envy, um, it's almost like a purge. Like, I, like, you know how if you're in Aya and you want to like, oh, I just want to listen to this song. And I was like, no, you really need to fucking get up and puke or you really need to go to the bathroom. This, the music will be here and you can just have to go. Uh, I just have to get up and move. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like you don't have a choice, you know, sock puppet style. Like you're mm-hmm. going to get up and move in a way that opens you up because this is locked and this is blocked and whatever it is energetically or not, or otherwise it is in the body. It's there for sure. You feel the kinks and you can unlock those things rather rapidly through breath and movement. And that just opens the whole channel. Yeah. Yeah, brother. <laughs> I've always had that, definitely had that experience. Well, I've been wanting to have uh, this podcast with you for some time. I've been a fan of you's, of use, use, use. I've been a fan of you for uh, many years. And um, Stealing Fire was such a great book because I think it bridged the gap of awareness around altered states through flow and through many of the ways we make it there and, and, and including a beautiful description of the Illusinian mysteries. And uh, as far back as, as we can date some of these practices that have, have gotten us to tap into a deeper level of knowing. And uh, of course we have a wide range of very cool topics to discuss today. Uh, something that you brought up to me on our hike uh, through the green belt was on hierogamy. Mm-hmm. So I want to dive deeply into that. I know you've got a lot to say on it. Yeah. And I'm sure I'll have plenty of questions <laughs> to go along with it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, just to set it back in frame, I mean, obviously I would imagine that, you know, listeners of your podcast and kind of following your yours and Tasha's life experience, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and Aubrey's and kind of that, ex- your extended community have all been exploring, um, varying forms of liberated and liberating sexuality and relational formats. And how does that fit in the constellation of basically ecstasis and catharsis, you know, peak experiences and deep healing. And how do these all live together and and gear into each other in a way that leads to, you know, potentially communitas, like whether that's in a dyad, like a pair and deep, deep relationship communion and expanding out into tribe and into bigger connections. So in that space, it seems like, like if you kind of continue the inquiry that I teed up in stealing fire, which is what is the role of peak states in those other two things in the healing and integrating and in the connecting and collaborating. Um, And you do it and you're not squeamish. You just kind of do it in an open-hearted way. You go where the research and the evidence suggests, et cetera. You basically end up with, you know, super sexy biohacking 
or really nerdy kink. (laughs) (laughs) And so the question of like, how, how might we do that? How ought we proceed um, with that sort of what you could call sort of a hedonic yoga of becoming, you know, that includes psychedelics, that includes sexuality, that includes breath work, movement, um, embodiment, potentially, um, yeah, music, all of these things together, what does that look like and how do we steer? Because in general, the only folks or communities that practice around that sort of stuff have often had kinks. <laughs> there have been reasons why. So, I mean, if you like, if you put all those things together, you're like, well, let's just do it all. You're like, well, who does all that? And you're like, cults. Yeah, cults, bachelor parties in Vegas, <laughs> you know, the Castro <laughs> district, you know, chemsex gay scene in, you know, Berlin and, and mm-hmm. San Francisco. You're like, oh shit, that's debauchery, right? That, that, that road lies ruin, right? And so for, you know, quote unquote regular folks who are sincere in their path towards, you know, both inspiration and integration, you know, so peaks and and healing, it can be confusing as far as like, hey, what is a path with heart? You know, what is what is a road that leads us to the light, you know, of you know, myth- mythologically, you could sort of say that the the grail castle, right? Where the where the errant knight seeking, right, seeking mm. the loving cup goes versus the Hotel California, you know, which becomes the seeking of sensation and pleasure in the hell realms, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think we even see that, we see that, not even, especially, you see that uh, in the Burning Man community, right? You can see that in the beginning of the night, in the early evenings, everybody is fresh, everybody is riding whatever, you know, metabolic chemicals they're on, and there can be profound beauty. It's often super sexy. It's, it's really powerful. You're like, oh shit, this is like Star Tribe, badass motherfuckers. Like everybody's throwing down. You wait until 4 a.m., 5 a.m. People are on the jaggedy back end, you know, of, of a re-up at 2 a.m. You know, that you, you see the, you know, the fucking New York form, you know, models like just blank, you know, blankly shaking their asses on top of the robot hot bus. And you're like, oh, <laughs> this isn't that anymore. Where did all the angels go? Yeah. You know, and it starts feeling a little hollow and a little empty. So I think that's a real question, which is, you know, what, what does a contemporary left-hand path look like? You know, because like the right-hand paths are, is the orthodox path. Orthodox just literally means straight thinking. Like orthodontist just means straight teeth, right? Mm. So orthodox is like the, you know, the way is straight, but the path is narrow. Don't fuck it up. You know, don't do these things. Don't do those things. And the left-hand path is, is basically, you know, and it harm none, do what thou wilt. It's all good, right? Work with all the experiences, all the materials and metabolize them into accelerated growth. But the reality is, is that, you know, if you track, and we were just talking about John Lilly, right? You can add in Ken Kesey, you can add in Aleister Crowley, you can add in, you know, a whole long line of folks that went down the left-hand path and put it in the ditch. Because precisely, like, if you can hack the arousal and reward networks and systems in the human body and brain, um, it's very hard to put the brakes on them. And Mm. if you set aside the right-hand path rules and you realize, in fact, you you know, I'm doing what I will, 
then there is this space where you've taken away all the social constructs and all the guidelines and you realize that they are all essentially illusory or just rickety constructs. And, and then the temptation to be bent by grabbing the one ring of power is there. So you end up with like Heath Ledger's the Joker. Like, I'm not fucking doing anything, man. I'm just a dog chasing cars, right? You end up with Brando in Apocalypse Now, like Kurtz going up the river. You end up with the amoral Sith Lord, pleasure sensation seeker. And so how do we, you know, now that all of these tools and technologies are available to us, how do we incorporate them without overclocking our processors, right? And how do we maintain caring, compassionate, ethical relationship to it all when there's a very slim track record of people who have pulled this off and haven't succumbed to ego inflation, sensation-seeking, indulgence, or some form of corruption or perversion. So that's really kind of been, you know, kind of been our inquiry. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's an important inquiry and it's certainly an important inquiry uh, for those that, that have, you know, recognized truth in a book like Sex at Dawn or in a book like Untrue by Wednesday Martin, where you start to see maybe we've kind of been coaxed into a certain model of living. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it, look, sex aside, you watch a movie like The Matrix and if you get it, you will see it in everything. You'll see Mm -hmm. it in the way we eat food. You'll see it in what we're told to buy. You'll see it in television programming. You'll see it in all the ways that we're taught how to live in the modern world. And I think there's a big pull to ancestral living. And I think a lot of that makes sense to us. You know, it certainly did for my wife and I when we read Sex at Dawn on how our sexuality could have been in a different way. And that doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not to say that this was blanketly across the board egalitarian and that everyone fucked everyone and it was a fucking giant peace pie. Um, it wasn't right, but there were different models. And I think, um, you know, intention is such a big piece, but even with the right intentions, you can get off track. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love to dive, uh, uh, deeper into that model and, and some of the things that you brought up on the hike, which were really important in terms of, um, you know, you can only choose three out of the four <laughs> that we were yeah, yeah. talking about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I was just thinking about this yesterday. Um, So to your point about once you've seen the Matrix, right, you see it everywhere. And I was thinking, holy shit, like what, what an amazing drumbeat of cultural narratives constantly reinforced of if you play in this space, it may be fun for a while, folks, but there's always hell to pay. And the, you know, the classic trope is like all the slasher Halloween flicks and all, all the horror movies where it's always the hot blonde chick who has, you know, who has, who has sex and then dies. <laughs> yeah. There's always that one. And then you think of like Johnny Depp's blow that movie mm-hmm. and boogie nights and even uh, the beach with Leo DiCaprio, right? All three of those. And there's, and there's a thousand others, right? There's always this paradisical early phase where it all looks absolutely fucking amazing. And then boom, hell to pay. So how many times is that story get reinforced in all of our cultural scripts as a crypto puritanical narrative that we are so familiar with that when it comes we see there's no shortcuts see there's no free lunches see <laughs> it's icarus right again yeah. and again and again so i mean imagine if our stories went the other way it's it, you know it's it's powerful so to your point about sex at dawn um 
I've been thinking about like sexy dawn and untrue and that whole and you know what women want. There's kind of a, a constellation of books that have come out in the last five years or so that are basically very similar in thesis. Right? They're basically saying, "Hey, um, traditional or at least you know nineteenth twentieth century uh, conventional Judeo-Christian monogamy uh, is a construct." And that in the past, especially in the ancient past, there was a, a much, you know, a sort of hidden reality of open relating and basically lustful women. I mean, there's, it basically is giving permission back for women for agency, choice, appetite, right? All of those kinds of things. And it's obviously, you know, no surprise, gone gangbusters. People love reading those books. Now, most evolutionary biologist friends of ours um, don't think that much of the science, you know, there's definitely a lot of cutting the foot to fit the shoe, uh, you know, and it's, and it's a just so story. It's kind of like how the leopard got its spots, you know, or why the giraffe has a long neck. Like these, these are stories with, you know, debatable academic footing, but credible enough to be persuasive to, to mainstream audiences. And, but what's, what I find really interesting, rather than like dismissing them at the academic level, what I think is more interesting is like why now why do they hit why do they gain such traction and why do general readers feel such permission you know to to live into a new story mm. and this was true even like carlos castaneda right i mean the teachings of don juan turns out to be a made-up story but castaneda was sourcing from someplace right he, he yeah. i mean while he may have been making up large chunks of his phd dissertation at ucla right and all of those kind of things it doesn't mean that it was all it's a helpful lie right and so yeah. it, the teachings of don juan remain relevant because they're speaking to people's present as much as they're describing a true past and the same even with sapiens right i mean sapiens that was my neck of the woods in grad school as well so like when I read Sapiens, particularly, I think it's, I think it's like chapter four, but he's basically, when he goes from painting the picture of like Neolithic cavemen, and then he kind of like, like speeds up the film and gets you to the beginning of the agrarian revolution 10,000 years ago. And he says in that chapter, like he makes all kinds of like big, ma major assertions about the unfolding of human culture and civilization. And since I was familiar with the historiography in the field, I'm like, holy shit, man, a lot, a lot must've happened in the last 10 years. Like, I don't, I, like, I don't remember this being like definitive truth. And so I flipped to the back of the book and for that entire chapter where he basically compresses, you know, 50,000 to a hundred thousand years of human culture, there's not a single goddamn footnote. I'm mm. like, holy shit, Yuval, this is like, this is an extended op-ed and no one caught it. No one called him out on it because we were all bouncing along on the meta narrative on the big story he was telling. And he is he's upending the story of neoliberal consumer promise. Right? Mm, he's saying, yeah. Hey, the rat race began a long fucking time ago, right? With the advent of agriculture. And the story we've been told that it's all been getting better, blah blah, blah Steven Pinker, all that kind of stuff yeah. is actually not true. And we're better off doing something old school and primitive or going back to our roots or some other, you know, some other possibility. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's, it's fascinating when um, stories today give ourselves permission to live into new, different narratives, right? Versus their actual kind of quote unquote objective truth. And so... With all that, um, and, and, you know, by the way, I mean, I think that like Sex at Dawn and, and What Women Want and Untrue, they are of a genre that also includes things like um, 
Robert Bly and Iron John, uh, mm. Women Who Run With The Wolves, yeah. Chalice and the Blade. There was kind of a 90s expression of that stuff mm. as well, which was, hey, you know, there were the burning times in Europe, the goddess, you know, goddess religions were repressed, you know, there's all this kind of stuff. And so we're forever ginning up and, and dusting off old myths and then rebooting them to live forwards in our lives. And so, you know, with that, um, I think that one of the, one of the most interesting things about, um, sexuality today is, is just to realize, uh, that, that evolution itself, like what we're working with, you know, and certainly what sex at dawn starts to speak to a bit is that evolution is fundamentally amoral and, and doesn't actually give a shit about our own, um, our own preferences at all. And, and so, so much of human suffering is based on, um, the rub between our hard coded biological impulses and, and then our preferences and our values and our feelings and our relationships and our norms. So when, when we think about that, um, you know, you think about, I mean, literally, like, I don't know how much, if you, if you ran a calculation, I'm guessing it's probably two thirds plus of human suffering is boils down to sexuality and conflicts around sexuality and all those kinds of things. If you think about the amount of sexual abuse and trauma, I mean, it was, it's 8%, 8% of Asians share Genghis Khan's DNA. Yeah. It's a fucking huge number. Yeah. That, that is, about that's that. just rape and pillage. You know, you're like, holy shit, that's incredible. Like, you know, and the fact that um, things like 50% of sexual violence against women happens to girls before the age of 16. You know, that is gutting. And then you think about, you think, oh, and prefrontal cortexes don't turn on until the age of 24, 25. Yeah, the brain doesn't finish till 28, right? Yeah, I mean, we were just watching a Netflix special with a, a woman comic, a young woman comic, but she was like, yeah, you know God's a man because he like made boobs like 10 years ahead of like finishing brains, <laughs> you know, which was, a, which was a punchline, but also speaks to the profound, like, like, like that, a, that a post-pubescent girl is sexually available. And, and for all of human history has been married, has been raped, has been all of those things. And yet emotional maturity and adult consent is lagging. You're just like that 10 years, how much trauma and suffering is because of that. Do you, do you think this may be a, a slight, slightly off topic, but I, I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's pertinent for the discussion of evolution. Do you think that with the way a lot of uh, indigenous cultures used to raise children, like the Hopis would not have, the parents raised the child. It was always aunties and uncles. A yeah. lot of cultures, it would be the grandparents. So you'd have at least um, one level of differentiation because it was too close. The parents mm -hmm. were too close to have that hands-on approach. Mm -hmm. And a lot of cultures, you know, the parents would still be able to work and do whatever the hunting and gathering or whatever they were doing mm -hmm. for that first half of the day when everyone worked and the kids would all be banded together with the elders. Mm -hmm. and do you think that kids could have children at a younger age for the sake that not all children were going to live mm -hmm. so they could start that longer by design sexually, but with um, the growth of the human brain and where it's come to through evolution, that that is why it lags. But at least that we had set that up in a way uh, society wise where 
it could work better than a nuclear family. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think, and specifically the Hopi, right? I mean, they had a very open policy as far as adult, I mean, adolescent sexuality and exploration. So there was same-sex exploration, there was early promiscuity and experimentation, there were all of these things pre-marriage, and, and it was all integrated and understood. So by the time there was a pairing, it was understood you'd effectively kind of got your yayas out, right? Um, and that divorce, you know, or separation was as easy as, you know, this is true for most of the Plains tribes as well, but it's just, you know, some simple ritual, like just putting the dude's moccasins outside the door. <laughs> like, like beat it, son. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I'd, I'd like a change up and, and even a norm like um, women averting their gaze and never making eye contact with their mother-in-laws, which, you know, it makes fucking perfect sense if you're stuck in a teepee all winter. Like yeah. you're like, damn, that is some genius anthropology right there. So the sense of did it work within a cultural context that includes just basic realities, including infant mortality, including all of these things, including extended kin networks and care. Yeah. I'm sure it did. Um, but just to kind of continue the thread of like the notion of how amoral evolution is, right? Think about honeymoon phase. You're high as a coon on, you know, first of all, estrogen testosterone is, you know, the, the, the mating impulse. Then you get sort of dopamine, you know, and the, and the drive for novelty and honeymoon highs. All that stuff tends to wear off in two to three years, which is precisely long enough to have sex, impregnate, gestate, and nurse an infant, and then boom, often switches off like a light and people end up in the doldrums. You know, you end up with women. In fact, I just read this paper last week, which was that when women are ovulating, or actually, no, it's when women have, uh, it's, it's the week immediately preceding ovulation. They actually experience a dip. Uh, they experience a change in estrogen and they become more irritated with their stable mate. They don't like how he looks. They don't like how he smells. They don't like how he talks. And the man can notices that. So he has a drop in testosterone. And the theory was, is that this actually increases her likelihood of stepping out on her guy in peak fertility to seek a more genetically superior mate. Wow. Yeah, you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> That's so brutal. And the same things happens with birth control pills. So birth control pills jack estrogen. And they will leave a woman um, seeking the domestic caregiver. So quite the, the classic pattern is, is a woman will be on the pill for a long-term relationship. She will love and find this man. He's a good, he's a good mate. He's going to be a good husband, a good father. They get married. She goes off the pill. They start trying to have a baby. And then suddenly she's like, like, what? What are you weak chin looking fucking motherfucker? Like, I'm going to go bang a Harley Davidson guy. And so the idea, and you're like, oh, that is such dirty pool. And, and you fast forward, you know, men in their 40s experience a drop in testosterone. And many, many of them blow up perfectly good homes, lives, marriages, work, because they go out and bang the secretary or chase some hot young thing. Because, and then, you know, biologically, what is the surest fire way to boost T-count in a guy? It is new sex with a younger mate. Mm. That can cost millions of dollars and create all kinds of conflict and turmoil. And then, you know, six months later or two months later, they too are like, wait a second, 
You know, uh, I'm Nintendo and she's Xbox. We don't even have anything to talk about. She doesn't, she doesn't even know the same sitcom. She was watching fucking Disney Channel when I was a grown ass <laughs> man. Like I got nothing in common with this woman now that the scales have fallen from my eyes. Mm. But what does he say? I just feel so alive around her. Everything seems fresh and new. And she's like, yeah, dude, you just got to boost. You could have gone to your doctor and got a fucking <laughs> tea patch and been fine. That would have been way cheaper. You know, so, so you look at all this stuff and you're like, oh my God, there is so much untold suffering, so much grief, so much trauma by us having our strings pulled by evolutionary drivers and impulses. But if we can identify all that, and, and you also think just sheer, like all that somehow we have figured out a way to get busy and make more of us, more of us for millions of years with no instruction manual. You know, like there was that old movie, was it called Blue Lagoon with Brooke Shields? Like it was, it was with her first movie and it was like her. I haven't seen that since I was a kid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it was kind of racy when you're a kid. You're oh, like, yeah. there's like boobies and stuff. But, but you know, she, she, and a, she and this other boy are stranded on a desert island and then they kind of come of age and they figure out how to get busy. You know, and you think about it, you're like, oh, you know, uh, you, you're an adolescent young boy and suddenly your nuts drop and they start making testosterone and then your little pee-pee stands up right? And, and it's super, super sensitive, all kinds of crazy nerve endings, but like everything it runs into, whether it's the inside of your jeans or your hand, it's like, it's rough, you know, but if you, if you play with it, like interesting things happen, but everything's kind of rough and doesn't feel that good. And then suddenly somehow you find a girl, right? And you're like, wait a second, there's this, like my bits match your bits, right? And there's this little super warm, super slick slot that you have that fits my thingy. Right. And then funnily enough, like the viscosity of a woman's arousal is, is higher viscosity than our synovial fluid and our knee joints. It's the slickest thing that humans make. And you're wow. like warm, wet, and slippery. Let me just try parking it there. That feels amazing. Well, wait a second. <laughs> let me back it out again. Wait, let me park it. Let me back it out. And then suddenly like lights, camera, action, amazing things happen. If you, if you play well for both of you, and then like, Bam, nine months later, you're like, joke's on you. You have another little human. <laughs> now, now, what the fuck connects those two activities? You know, like that is a bait and switch of epic proportions. And we are led down that garden path willy-nilly. So you realize that and you're like, okay, that is some amazingly strong drivers, amazingly strong neurochemical, biological impulse. And it leads to, I mean, even in the developed world today, like, the U.S., Western Europe, you know, Japan, in the developed world, it's a 50-50 coin toss on whether a pregnancy is wanted or not. Wow. Half of the humans in the developed world are unwanted accidents of that evolutionary bait and switch. And you're like, holy shit, what would the world look like if all of us were wanted? If all of us had a home to be welcomed into that was stable, prepared, and ready to raise another person? So we're like, holy shit, man. So like, like that right there is the human condition. You can pretty much boil it down to this. And, and you know, along with like consciousness and realizing we're going to die, you know, that's probably the other half of the existential mind fuck. And mortality is pretty big. It's a doozy, right? <laughs> and our buddy Jason Silva, you know, like is forever, you know, forever quoting Ernest, Ernest Becker on that one. Um, so the question is, is rather than succumb to that, right? Can we take all of that, all of that encoding, and all of that biological impulses and all those drivers and actually just jump the tracks. And instead of saying this is solely for procreation, hab habitual instinctive, 
right? Um, procreation. Can we jump the tracks and put it towards transformation? Right. And if we can use all of those drivers in a kind of judo move, then you're into the realm of what is ultimately in the East is typically called Tantra and what in the West is usually referred to as sex magic. You know, so can you take all of that momentum and, and roll it, you know, judo or keto style into the other project? And that's where things get super interesting. Yeah. And I'm, I'm fascinated with it. I have a, uh one of Osho's books somewhere over there on Tantra. And I haven't, I haven't really taken a dive into it yet. I know it gets thrown around a lot in Burning Man circles and plant medicine circles. And uh, depending on who you talk to, it kind of, you know, it can sound like the Holy Grail. It can sound mm-hmm. like this, uh, this thing that, you know, that uh, somebody who like, like one of the first time I did ayahuasca, I wanted to fucking beat my chest and shout it on a mountaintop. Uh The world needs this, you know, like that kind of thought process. Unpack what Tantra is uh, from your understanding and and really the reason, I guess, the reason we would want to explore that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, I think that there's, you know, there's obviously lots of different definitions. And when people typically think of Tantra, they think of sexy time. They think of the Kama Sutra and all that kind of stuff, right? Although interestingly, like the entire Kama Sutra, I think there's only like 11 or 12 pages devoted to sexuality. And the rest is all about flower arranging and music and art and, you know, massage and like just how to live a good balanced life in connection. Um, But basically a super stripped down description of Tantra is basically that left-hand path, which is working with all that arises as fuel or raw material for transformation of which sexuality is a subset, right? And cultivating uh, sexual energy, um, particularly orgasm, um, is a powerful fuel. It's almost like the flame underneath, you know, of the crucible, right? So if, if you can cultivate that life force and use it to turn up the heat in a controlled manner to burn away everything that isn't pure in your self system, then that can be a really potent means of self-discovery and relational bonding. And, and in fact, um, you know, to go back to John Lilly, right? 1953, he does that research with the rhesus monkeys and maps that are the human, in fact, general primate ecstatic arousal network. So like what in our nervous systems gives rise to peak states maps one-to-one with the sexual arousal network which makes good sense because evolution is efficient as well. It may be amoral, but it's efficient, right? It doesn't waste time, space, or energy or genes. And, you know, then you, you realize that when I was actually um, on a panel with Rick Doblin from MAPS uh, last year, and we were just talking beforehand, and he was describing how their research um, with the MDMA studies for PTSD, they were kind of doing a neurochemical assay of where are folks when they're in that safe, open, connected place in themselves that allows them to go back and revisit traumatic experiences and kind of rewrite them, you know, kind of over encode them with something, with a new story. And he said, it's actually tends to be high prolactin, high vasopressin, high oxytocin. And interestingly, threshold beta wave brain activity. So it's not that they're completely zonked and they're sort of off in alpha, theta, like super dreamy. There's actually enough waking consciousness there that they're able to steer and they're able to kind of navigate the filing cabinets and this and that. But it's generally speaking, a kind of dreamy, safe, secure, warm and love place. And he said kind of, and he said, interestingly, the closest analog we found to that is post-orgasm. 
you're like, huh, okay, that's interesting. So 30 years, 10 million bucks to get <laughs> one substance, hard as fuck to, to navigate all these gates. Or how else could we get humans to a post-orgasmic state in order to heal trauma? And Nicole Prousey, who was at the Kinsey Institute, and is now that you know famous and controversial researcher who's done research on pornography and research on women's arousal, all these sort of things. He's, she actually did the studies on uh, one taste and orgasmic meditation as well. But she's, she's really iconoclastic. And tragically, she's taken a ton of hits for this. I mean, like her world is really chaotic. In fact, Erin uh, Alexander has had her on his podcast okay. as well. She's a badass and fearless, um, but is clearly creating a lightning rod of backlash and haters um, in, in the world. But one of her uh, research projects is on validating women's orgasm as a replacement for SSRIs. Wow. Right? And the idea yeah. that, hey, look, if you can naturally trigger this cascade of neurochemistry, um, surely that's going to be more healing with less side effects you know, all of those kind of things. Um, and shouldn't we be able to have that as part of our healthcare regimes? So you lay all this stuff together. You lay traditional Tantra, you know, Western sex magic, and then contemporary neuroscience and research around trauma and healing and, and you know, and that notion of the huge evolutionary drivers. You're like, huh, this is a pretty compelling case as to why we might want to introduce a component of basically sexual fitness to our overall regimes of becoming next level humans, right? Yeah. And, and that's different than like the emotional romantic. Like if you want to have that, absolutely have it. Like you don't need to like overburden Valentine's Day, you know, or <laughs> courtship or any of these things. But if you basically said, hey, um, there are, there's a, there's a sexual yoga right? A set of practices that are distinctly available and it's more fun and more potent with a practice partner, yeah. right? Therefore, it's important, you know, therefore we need to figure out how do we relate to each other in a way that's ethical, grounded, stable, that lets us engage in these practices. Because right now I think that there's a ton of conversation in the relationship space that I find super uninteresting. It's really boring actually, which is basically A, whose format is better, right? Is monogamy yeah. better? Is polyamory better? And there's a lot of very low level kind of almost pissing match, right? Well, I think that's kind of how the narrative goes through any conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Through the political climate, through social media, through all these different things, through social justice warriors to you name it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, there's no gray area. It's like a, it's almost like a, like a, an old school need through the old patterning of communication to decide black and white. Yeah, exactly. And, and it doesn't really leave us very far along this path of inquiry. So, you know, the classic is that people who are in defense of traditional monog monogamy look at swinging polyamory, et cetera, with a slightly prudish lens. They say, oh, that will never work. And there's, you know, the legitimate uh, critiques and questions of stability, of indulgence, of what happens to the kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. That's a standard one. Polyamorous tend to say, oh, bed death you know, compliance-based, joyless, lifelong partnership. Yeah, how natural, many things, how many monogamous relationships end in, in uh, divorce yeah. and how many end with uh, infidelity? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's, it's more interesting, you know, to sort of pan back to the anthropological level and be like, hey, look, how does sexuality and relational format, um, what, what are the options? You know, so you start at the bottom of the stack with celibacy. Like celibacy is a tool of cultivating sexual energy. 
right? It doesn't just have to be shut it down, block it. It can actually be a way of channeling and intensifying it for spiritual practice or other ends. Then you have serial monogamy, which is by far and away the default in the Western world over the last several thousand years, which is just, you know, if nothing else, uh, infant mortality and maternal death would lead a man of means in particular to have multiple wives over a lifetime. Now it's happening in Westlake all the time, just with expensive divorces. Right? <laughs> uh, but it just used to happen because of life. Uh, and then there's lifelong monogamy. And then there's any other form of open relating, right? So let's, let's say, you know, yeah, let's just call it that. We'll just call it polyamory. So for me, what I think is much more interesting than getting into straw man conversations where you set up the worst case example of one format to contrast and justify your own format. Let's just say they're all paths, right? They're all relational formats that can lead to higher levels of awakening, integration, and development. So rather than getting a raptor on the axle of format, let's consider what is the goal that we might all be seeking, which is not monogamy, right? But potentially hierogamy, which would be in the Greek phrase, hieros gamos, was the sacred union, right? It was literally the ritualized, if you've seen Eyes Wide Shut, that Stanley Kubrick film, right? Mm -hmm. That was a sexified, victorious, secrety, you know, kind of expression like that, that union, that ritual, of an archetypal man, archetypal woman in union um, to create some form of higher spiritual activity was what the Greeks called hieros gamos. And that's a mouthful. So you can, I think, just a play on words, you can say higher agami, which is what is, the, what is the unions that get us higher, right? And, and that is a very different question than um, who do I shack up with and why? Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and because, I mean, it sort of doesn't really, as long as it's consent, we're, we're 21st century, we're all consenting adults. As long as we're playing nicely and we're honoring our agreements, like who gives a fuck? <laughs> yeah. Right? Let's not, let's not re-litigate and litigate that all the time. Let's be like, hey, you're playing well with your special friends. What are you seeing? What are you learning? How are we growing? And that to me becomes like, that's the conversation I'd love for more of, I think it's probably time for us yeah. all to move into that space. Because what I know, actually, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that that is a, uh, a critical point that you're making. And, you know, one of the reasons I see, uh, I forget, you know, we've had a ton of questions uh, since we've began to talk about our relationship model as it is, as it stands now. And I have, you know, I should say, we started open relationship seven years into monogamy. Uh -huh. And that, we would never have fucking worked without that foundational piece mm -hmm. being met without being by each other's side and working through all of our shit together to get here to where we could handle all of the challenges that have presented themselves. But with that, the intention of growth, like how do we grow together? How do we use whatever stimulus, whether it is other partners or plant medicines or anything for that matter, the practices of yoga and meditation, how do we use those to grow? is a very different thing than I think I want to fuck other people. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really a landing pad for us to realize that all of these things that, that come at us as challenges, if we look through the lens of growth, we can use that to heal and to grow together. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we've been, why we've been able to extract and make it work thus far. We could, at some point we may talk about personal stuff, but my, my point in, in bringing that up is, I don't find that many people in the space of 
any relationship model, whether it is for monogamy or polyamory or open or any of these other in-betweens, is thinking of it that way, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. there could be, that could be the thing that causes staleness in monogamy mm-hmm. because you're not looking to grow with your partner. It's almost, it's the same mindset as somebody who finishes colleges and says, says I don't need to read another book for the rest of my life, yeah. right? I've done all my learning. I'm good. Right. If you if you treat the partner that way in the relationship you're in that way, it's stagnant water. Mm-hmm. It's not flowing anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, th- I think you just you just reference something that's really important to to tease apart, which is that in most conversations about monogamy, polyamory, for instance, they we you know we get trapped by the language and we think that it's a polar choice or a binary. It's either or, but I think it's much more layered. So there's. Con, let's, let's call it conventional monogamy down here, which is code-based, social norms, compliance, living it, doing it the way my parents did and what the neighbors think, right? And then there's conventional polyamory, which is basically, I'd like to bang other people. I'd like some, I'd like some novelty. I'd li- I don't want to say no to my appetites and desires, and we're going to practice some form of nonviolent communication and keep it all real, right? And that really, I mean, I think there's a lot of disingenuousness at that level. I don't think it's nearly as transformative for most people as they'd like to pay the lip service to. And really it's, I'm, I'm novelty seeking and I, and I like to like what I like, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of extra hopped up uh, lip service to, you know, the higher aspirational ideals, but really it's still evolution just playing a trick on us. I just like mm. these slow motion breakups. You know, I want to start banging someone else. I'm going to tell you about it instead of doing it behind your back, but really new relationship energy is going to fucking win the day. Right? <laughs> and we just, we, I just keep fucking you while I start fucking the other, the next person. Yeah. Right. And it's not actually that honest. I think what would be much more honest at that level is just saying, Hey, we'd like to, we'd like to have an open relationship and have sex with other people versus we all love each other equally, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But so, so you've got conventional monogamy and then I think you've got conventional polyamory. People haven't actually really transformed what they're doing. But then above that you have post-conventional monogamy, like true sacred union, dyadic, right? And then potentially above that you have transformational polyamory, which I think, you know, is quite likely a pinnacle point of human relating and working with sexual energy. It's just that a tiny, tiny fraction of people ever make it that far up the stack. Most people get sidelined and distracted, toggling between conventional monogamy and conventional polyamory. And the thing about Tantra, right? I mean, the thing about uh, like a working definition of Tantra is just basically activities or practices that burn through karma. Right, so back to that notion of the crucible. And it's really easy to make more come and really hard to burn it off cleanly. And so if you end up in complex relationships, which, right, I mean, obviously, you know, Metcalfe's law of network theory is that the complexity of a network goes up with the square of the number of nodes in the network, right? So, so two people squared is four, three people squared is nine so things get complicated quickly (laughs) (laughs) yes they do right no doubt and 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 what you will notice is that if the point of tantric relating is to be burning off karma but you're increasing exponential complexity with each other then you might spend all of your time just trying to get back into present tense connection with each other 
And that takes a fuck ton of time, a lot. And, and you might not even get there. I mean, most relationships are unstable in this space and they're constantly pairing and breaking and pairing and breaking. And so you're only just trying to metabolize karma as you keep creating more of it versus that transformation, transformational monogamous stage where you're like, actually, we're going to sit here and not flinch. We're not going to stir up the pond at all. And we're just going to free dive. We're just going to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And so there's a real peril in conventional polyamory, the first stage of letting, of having your karma get in the way of your dharma, right? You're creating more causes and effects, right? You're carrying more blowback, more drama that is, that is impeding you from getting to and psycho excavating your purpose. And so I even had this thought yesterday with, with my partner, which was like, it's almost like, like a cenote, right? Down in Tulum, right? Those beautiful limestone cave aquifers, right? And it's, and, and the bottoms might look, you know, almost like it was going to be a, a, a little, you know, 20 foot deep pool, but there's a, you know, there's another column that goes deeper and another column that goes deeper. And if you stay straight in the center of it, you can free dive all the way to the depths of consciousness, all the way down. But if you rattle around, if you knock off some coral, if you stir shit up, then suddenly you can't see anything. Mm. And suddenly all those caves and nooks and crannies, AKA the drama, the karma, the relationships can trap you, even drown you. And, and yet if you stay smack dab in the center, you can descend the water column all the way down into infinite spaciousness. And that's arguably the game, which is, can we, you know, no new karma, and if you're spending all your time one, you know, processing and integrating how she thinks about what he did and how they feel and all this kind of stuff, all you're ever doing is horizontal activity, trying to get back to being present in relationship, horizontal activity, and you're not actually dropping deeper and deeper and deeper. And so that becomes a real, you know, that's just an open question. Like if that's your jam, like if you're saying, hey, my dharma is to lean into novel relational formats. Awesome. You know, then you're doing the work. But if your dharma is something else, right, then really check what are the opportunity costs for me to take on that complexity. And you brought up the three of the four. So in, in, uh, in our research for this book, and but also in just, you know, socially and, and personally curious, checking in with communities of practice, particularly, you know, West Coast, Colorado, you know, very, you know, Burning Man community, transformational community, et cetera, um, who felt like the kind of leaders, advocates, teachers, voices in the space of transformational relationship, basically. Um, it felt like there were, there were sort of four things, you know, like you can have a soulmate, Let's just, we'll call it that. Let's just say, you know, a deeply bonded, connected, committed primary relationship. You can have children. You can have life's work. You can have polyamorous relationships. Pick three of those four. So if you don't have, let's say you've come out, you, let's say you've had children and you're no longer in that relationship and you want to simply relate openly and you have passionate work in the world, Awesome. You could probably do that. If you have, you know, primary partner, compelling work in the world, no kids, you've got the bandwidth 
for an open relationship. I haven't yet seen anybody nail all four. So this is not a law. This is merely a thesis, right? But we haven't seen it violated yet because it's just a bandwidth question. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and what is your work to be done? Yeah. When you brought this up to me on our hike, uh, it blew my fucking mind because it, put, <laughs> it really put into, into words the feeling that I had within, which was at this stage of our relationship and, and you know, for people who've been following along, uh, my wife's had a boyfriend for over a year now. I have not been called to have another girlfriend having experienced that. I mean, I felt like my consciousness was pulled in every fucking direction. So to use the cenote example, I would have been in every crevice and every cavern except for mm-hmm. ascending or descending into the depths of, of my own consciousness and awakening. It felt like I was putting out fires everywhere. And, you know, I think what I told you was I would rather learn how to paint better or play Native American flute with my spare time, or read, fucking finish the Center of the Cyclone book, or the King, the Warrior, the Magician, the Lover, anything else yeah. that fills my cup is more valuable to me with my time and my bandwidth and what my mental capacity can handle because we have a soon-to-be five-year-old and we have a baby girl coming on the way this summer. Mm-hmm. And we have, uh, I mean, fuck, I mean, I'm definitely doing the vocation. I have my life's work. It's, it's yeah. having interesting conversations with people like you. It's continuing to learn and to grow. And as I work on piecing together key elements to a better life, sharing that with the world, yeah, that fucking matters to me a lot more than who else can I fuck? Yeah. I mean, so much of it just see, it feels like the difference between an alchemist and an addict is the scoreboard. Mm. Yeah. Right. Because I mean, the tools you know, especially once we're in this left-hand path, like you can work with it all, you can play with all these hedonistic or hedonic technologies, you can get lost spinning in that space. And really the only thing to separate, am I spinning or am I bringing back gold, right? Is do I ship it? (laughs) Yeah. Right. And, And as long as there's some new novel diversion, we can become slaves to our own dopamine loops. And our own pleasure seeking. And then we're just fucking little little monkeys just beating off. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And, and the difference between God, man, and jerking monkey is, is, is a razor's edge. You know? And, and, if you're, and if you're not subscribing to orthodox guardrails, you're saying, I'm going to trust my own judgment and steer. It's very easy. It's like driving on a highway in a whiteout. It's very easy to end up in the ditch and not even notice you got there. You know, because you don't hear the rumble strip. Mm. And and so, you know, and then that goes back to sort of mate selection. It's sort of like if you're pure, it's like the difference between like sport fucking and sport climbing to me, it seems an interesting analogy because, you know, with sport fucking, if it's just we're here as consenting adults to, you know, rub bodies and have fun, that's awesome. Good for you. Like, you need know, like just do it nicely, be clean with each other, that kind of thing. And that's very similar to, sport climbing like if you go to an indoor climbing gym and all the thing you know all the anchors are bolted and you know all the ascenders are are mechanical and you can really hard to fuck it up you know and you can climb you can tie into a rope with pretty much anybody and if somebody looks good in a climbing harness and leggings you're like hey honey you want to climb you want to climb with me let's do this and it's very low consequence high enjoyment pretty easy to do very low bar for who i would tie in on a rope with to sport climb but when you think about the kind of sex magic tantra space then that's much more like high altitude mountaineering 
right? And who I choose to do that with is a fundamentally different filter. It's not, do you look good in the climbing outfit? Right. Um, Or would I like, would I like a romp with you? It's, it's, can I hang with you for three days hanging on a portal edge, you know, at 6,500 meters, you know, hanging on by our fingernails as, as a Himalayan storm rips through, or if I take a whipper and break both my femurs, do you have the skills and the, and the wits to get me safely back down to a helicopter evac? Right. And so the bar there is really, it's a fundamentally different question, even though we get so fixated on like sexuality that we often don't get past that. And so the sport climbing to sport fucking versus high altitude mountaineering, your selection for, for climbing partners to go into that death zone, that place of high, high consequence and high risk is fundamentally different. And, and that's, that's the other theme in the sex at dawns and the untrues in all of these books, which I keep reading and then wishing they would go further yeah because the basic thesis of these books is saying hey there's a lot of old rickety rigid maybe even inaccurate social customs and norms and if we are to be free sex positive consenting adults we should take those things away and you're like awesome that's great um but it's fundamentally around that notion of kind of secular humanist sex positivity we should take away the barriers to a full exploration of sensation, relation, pleasure, right? And that's great, but it's a very tactical argument because what happens is if you follow sex positivity far enough, right, you kind of end up, um, you know, it shares a backyard fence with Tantra and sex magic. And if sex positivity is about taking away barriers, taking away rules, right? And allowing people to experience things freely. That's an awesome um, antidote, right? To repressive social norming. But the backyard fence bumps right up against sex magic and Tantra. And there's a fuck ton of rules in that space. Mm Because it's like, you don't know what you don't know, right? And in fact, it's very easy to overcook, to lose your mind, to do a bunch of things. And so for me, it's a little bit, I mean, now I'm mixing metaphors madly, but it's a little bit like the difference between, you know, being a kind of hooligan at a ski resort and you're trying to stay away from the ski patrol. You know, they're going to clip your ticket if you're going too fast or jumping air off the catwalks, right? And you're, you're like, you're not the boss of me. Fuck you, man. You know, right? And, and that's the game. You just stay away from ski patrol, right? Which is kind of the realm of like sex positivity. Like, let us go do what we want and have fun without repression or punishment. Great. But then you go through the, those little backcountry gates at the top. Sometimes you see, right? Especially in resorts out West. And it's like, Hey, you know, like avalanche zone, like you need your equipment. You need to have a, a, a transceiver. You need to have a shovel. You need to have probes. You know, you need to know what the fuck you're doing out here because while it looks the same, it's all white stuff. We get to slide down, right? It's not the same inside the boundaries there's avalanche control there's grooming there's all these things that make this place safe out there you're actually in a dynamic lethal environment right and if you don't know what you're doing out there you have no business going and so i think that that's the question which is particularly when you combine psychedelics you combine sexuality you combine all these liberating and liberated technologies the tendency is to say you're not the boss of me Right. Yeah. I, I, I am my own master versus holy smokes, we're in we're in territory that is um complex 
potentially fatal, profoundly beautiful, right? But but is a but is a fundamentally different environment than the one that we were just leaving. Oh, without a doubt. All right. So now we can get into now that we've paved the way here, let's get into the the juicy stuff. Yeah. Grass tax. Yeah. Yeah. So um Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the simplest is just uh, to say, okay, so now we've laid out the, you know, the formats, the idea of ideally some form of sexual yoga of becoming is potentially a category or, or, or form of accelerated human development. The historical lineages, East and West, are sort of tantra and sex magic. The relational formats can be any option you choose, celibacy, serial monogamy, lifelong monogamy, polyamory, or open relating, that is a subset of hierogamy, which is ideally any relational format that gets you to those higher domains, right? The sacred union. And that there are tools and techniques that can accelerate the, um, the basically the, the access to peak experience and the healing and integration of trauma. So now let's, we can talk about roadmaps, like how to actually get this done. So let's yeah. just say it requires high trust, high integrity, um, impeccable human relating, because without it, if you're going down that cenote, right? Or if we use that example, right? You will get, you will muddy the water. You will not be able to see, right? And you will end up um, risking life and limb. And as an example, right, I mean, Aleister Crowley, the kind of, you know, f- famous. I just got his uh, magic number four, mm-hmm. book four. Uh, but I want you to dive. I haven't opened it yet, but I, I looked at it and I was like, holy shit, this dude went deep. He went crazy deep. <laughs> he went crazy deep. I mean, he, 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 A, he was one of the best mountaineers of his generation. So he was pioneering like crazy mixed snow and ice routes in Scotland and Europe that no one else had done. He was on mushrooms in Mexico on one of the volcanoes, got this huge fucking download and then goes to Egypt and downloads his whole thing at the pyramids. He was utterly radical. He was hanging out in his, um, the Abbey of Thelema, uh, his, his, you know, his sort of temple, having sex with one of his consorts high on hash and opium while playing chess against four dudes in different rooms around him and defeating them all. <laughs> I mean, he was a fucking G and writing poetry. I mean, like, like absolute polymath and insinuated himself in basically the Western hermetic orders, like the, the golden dawn that Yates was a part of and all of these different secret societies uh, of, that were the keepers of the kind of Persian, Greco-Roman, Egyptian, uh, sort of sacred transformational traditions. It rocketed to the top of each of them, blew them all up and kind of destroyed them and then kept going until he, cre- and, and, and then created his own ultimately. So, I mean, like truly epic, well beyond the, you know, 666, he's the sign of the beast, you know, showed up on the back of Sergeant Sh- Sergeant Pepper mm-hmm. guy. Um, and yet, you know, also a super cautionary tale, kind of like Lily, where you're like, huh, you know, if they were finding all of that light, how did they end up, how did it not bear fruit 
visibly yeah. in their life. Because I mean, you and I are husbands, you and I are fathers, right? I mean, this stuff matters and it's not enough to just go seeking truth or seeking power for the sake of it, right? We have to be able to bring it back home and it has to bear fruit in our lives and in a way that's stable in a way that's grounded in a way that's, that's life affirming and supporting for everyone we we care about and are responsible for. And Crowley, I mean, he burned out three of his consorts. He called them scarlet women when they were initiated into that role. And um, they lost their minds. Damn. Right. So, so the, at first there's a kind of a titillating sense of like, Oh, cool. Super sexy time. Want to know all about it, <laughs> you know? And, and, the realities are is it, it, it definitely works. It works better than you can imagine. And you will find yourself in incredibly high altitude, high consequence terrain faster than you know. So just to state those things as kind of, you know, um, appropriate precautions. And if you engage in this process, um, I mean, my partner and I literally had to kind of like write on a piece of paper and stick on the fridge. Like, remember, colon, we did this on purpose. Mm. Because you get into it and you will forget. You will forget where you are. And what then what arises is so triggering and so rich. Because, I mean, back to that crucible idea, right? The idea is, is how do you turn the flame and tune it so that it precisely keeps your whole self-system you know, your nervous system, your psychology, your, your, all of it on a slow simmer without boiling over, right? It's like when you're stoned in college and trying to make mac and cheese and you'd crank that fucker on high because you really <laughs> wanted the, the mac cheese and cheese. Goes over the fucking <laughs> you know, stove, yeah. It's a mess, right? And then you turn it off and the whole thing settles. But that, like that's, and you get goopy pasta, right? You actually want an alchemy. You want the slow simmer. And when you engage in these practices, um, they, at first you're like, okay, this is super fun. And then you're like, oh my gosh, we're in the ooey gooey. Like we're in like the warm honey and we can't miss. This is amazing. This feels so good. I've never felt this good. Actually, this is incredible. And, and then you're like, we can't, we can't miss like no look threes. Like, look at us. We're just fucking smiling <laughs> you know, until uh, 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 like it's burned down to the next level of your karma of your pain of buried traumas of these kind of things. And when that comes up, it's like, you know, you feel like you've just been kicked in the balls. You want to puke. You hate each other. Right. And so Barry Long, who was an Australian uh, Tantra teacher said, until you would rather eat a shit sandwich, you haven't even begun Tantra. Wow. So this is sex as a practice Yep. in the same way that psychedelics would be used as a practice for uncovering, peeling back layers, awakening, and that has a built-in requirement of working through your shit. Yeah, 100%. And the notion that the shittiest shit will actually occlude your self-awareness that it is your shit you're working through in that moment. It will Mm. hijack you and you will get pulled down into that old narrative pattern. So you will get sucked down into the hell realms and the only thing you'll have to survive is muscle memory of how, you know, like, like in, like in surfing, when you get dumped by a wave and you can't tell, you're in the washing machine and you can't tell which way's up. What do they say? They say, climb your leash, right? Cause mm. your board floats right? Yeah. and you just have to, you, you don't know which way's up. 
And that is your only location. So returning to the love, returning to the practice, staying with it. So, so I'll, I'll back up and just set up a parameter, which is the difference between sexual yoga and your romantic sexuality is that romantic sexuality is typically either an exclamation point on a good day, like, woohoo, you know, I just got a raise or a promotion or I just kicked ass. Like, like, let's go, let's go have sex and celebrate, you know, or it's a power negotiation tool that is dispensed or withheld to gain other things in life or the relationship, both of which are, you know, relatively ephemeral, you know, shitty, not that profound. A sexual yoga is we commit to this as ironclad practice the same way I do to working out or flossing my teeth or whatever. I don't wait to see if I feel like it in order to do it. I do it because I value the long-term accrued benefits, mm. right? And if it's helpful, you can separate the two. You can still do the Valentine's Day. You can still do the wahoo, I love you, right? You can do all that. But the, the notion of adding in a sexual fitness or a sexual yoga practice is pronounced. And that is a, you know, a daily, weekly, monthly calendar, right? Where you stick with it hell or high water, especially high water, right? Especially when I hate your fucking guts and we're going to bow onto the mat anyway, right? And that's the beginning of turning up the heat and of creating the container of the alchemical crucible. So I mean, we can come at this a thousand different ways, but basically at the highest level, what you're attempting to do, I mean, you mentioned psychedelics as distinct. I mean, this actually all goes together at some point. So basically if you, if you again, if you pursue this with grounded ethical connection, relational strength, discipline, humility, openness, and you don't flinch, you will end up with basically, you know, and you're, and you're open to making use of all the tools and technologies, you, respiration, movement and embodiment, sexuality and orgasm, music and art and substances. And you basically end up with a acro yoga, Thai massage, psychedelic dance party fuckery session that ends <laughs> up in rad shamanic tantric space. Mm. And and what that can look like is the idea of saying, okay, back out sexuality for a second. And if you're like, if you're just on the route to wholeness, what do I do? Well, I do body work, right? I do emotional psychodynamic work. I do breath work. I learn to control my physiology. I learn to not be in a fight flight, sympathetic stress response. I learn to downregulate. I learn to do all these things. And then you basically just say yes to all that. And then just add cultivating and releasing sexual erotic orgasmic energy to pulse the nervous system, right? And in, in a period of peak arousal, such that I light up all my circuits with light. And I use that to both gain inspiration, which typically comes through at those times, as well as gain insight into where in my system is still broken or impeded. And then I can even use some of that juice to then mend as I go. Um, and that, I mean, arguably, I'm not aware of a, of a more comprehensive protocol because it kind of makes sense. You know, you're, you're yeah. leveraging hormonal stuff, you're leveraging neurophysiology, you're leveraging all of these things. And back to the MAPS PTSD research, you are, you are engaging in profound, um, 
profound trauma work and integration. And so, um, even, I mean, I'm, I'm torn now between getting into specific paint by numbers, like the how to's versus the emotional, psychological. Let's start with emotional arc. and then let's okay. get into the how to's. Okay. I, I definitely want to, okay. I want to get that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, so let's just say we'll, 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 we're going to come back to the how to's, but let's just say we're doing it and we're doing a daily and a weekly practice and you have, and it doesn't always have to be slam, bam, fuckery every day. It's just a matter of you just keeping the flywheel spinning. Right. So you're generating heat. You're generating these things. We talked about how you might start out in the first band of like honey, you know, or what we would kind of playfully call the yum, you know, where it's super ooey gooey and super pleasurable and fun. You burn through that. You, while you're in it, you think you can't fall off it. And then you fall off it and you hit the next layer of psychoarchaeology where you're like, oh, this is a pain point in our relationship. This is an imbalance. This is something from my past, from our past. We've just paved over in the comings and goings of life. We get to that. That knocks us out of it. We might even forget we were in it. We might even forget that we were conducting an intentional practice to get us to this level. Once we're in it, it's just like, fuck this. I hate this and I hate you, right? If you flinch at that point, you get booted out. And you forget you were playing the game. Mm. You've turned off the flame, right? If you can remember, however painful and white knuckling it is, and stay in the practice and stay in the love, then you can learn to work it out. So we don't actually have to have a bitch session. We don't have to go to our couples therapist. We don't have to do all the normal stupid shit that people do, thinking that words are going to replace energetics. You can work it out. Work out the kinks, work out your problems, work out your solutions, work out your answers, work out your questions. You can work it out in a neurophysiological way via the deliberate cultivation and cycling of the psychosexual energy. And you can also learn to make love, right? Because if love is really just a neurochemical profile, I don't have to talk to you about it until we stumble ourselves back into it. We can just be like, hey, boop, 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 boop. Let's do that. Mm right? Let's create high vagal nerve tone. Let's create an abundance of oxytocin, right? Let's create dopamine and endorphins. Let's, let's precipitate that physiological profile and then see how we feel. So once you realize that, that is a complete reversal of all of human relational dynamics and norms. We don't talk about it. I don't negotiate. I don't say you do the dishes and I'll laundry the socks or you had a guy's weekend. So now I get a girl's weekend and a spa day. None of this tit for tat scarcity mindset bullshit. You're like, we can fucking print money. We don't need to be hoarding the piggy bank. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And so learning to literally engineer and make love becomes a profound insight of like, how do we go through this? So we, we can fuck it out. We don't have to talk it out. And that doesn't mean we're repressing the dynamics. It's choosing a neurosomatic way of metabolizing them and working through them versus just linguistics from ego-based separate identity. So let's just say you're engaging this game of psychoarchaeology. And I realize I'm throwing out a lot of like <laughs> neologisms, but I think people can track them. So, and you kind of just burn through each layer. And, if, and the prize, it's almost like a video game, the prize for not flinching and staying in your practice, staying bowing on the mat, which is effectively your bed, right? Is that you get the level up. So if the level of pain and trauma that you're now getting down to, you haven't visited for a while or ever, you have a choice. You either get hijacked in the narrative 
and you get stuck in cause effect loops, AKA creating more comma. But if you don't flinch, right, and you stay in the practice, then you dissolve it forever. And you can do that to get to the deep now with each other. Because we're very rarely in, co-located in time and space and identity with each other, right? So if we're sitting together and we've got a long history, right, it's always my leading edge. What's my latest ayahuasca insight or breakthrough? What's my most profound new me? Oh, the scales have fallen from my eyes. I used to think this, but now I am that versus your partner's bleeding edge, which is where's the last place you hurt me deeply? And, and I've got that registered, you know, Bessel van der Kolk issues are in the tissues, right? Where's the last place you fucking hurt me? And I'm located back there. So I might be six months or six years out of phase with your newest, greatest, shiniest, mm. right? Yeah. And that creates all kinds of dissonance and conflict. And the number of times that somebody on their leading edge starts then projecting their shadow back to their partner of like, oh, we're just not on the same path. They're not just as interested in spiritual growth as I am. They don't even recognize who I've become now. I think I might need to separate or start banging someone else, right? I mean, it's so many, so many easy ways versus owning the shadow, which the person holding the trauma is saying, hey, in order for me to trust this new you, I have to have you come back and credibly make amends and atonement for the old you that hurt me here in this way. Mm. Right. And the temptation yeah. for spiritual bypass for the new person is like, I'm not going back. I'm never going back. I'm a totally different fucking person now. Yeah. I've let, I've let all that go. And it's like, well, not so much. We're always out of phase and throw in kids. And that's a huge time. Like, like who are we as new parents? versus who are, who are we as parents of teenagers? Right. We're different humans. And our kids have been imprinting us off us that entire time, probably more accurately than we were ever aware. Right. Yeah. And so 4D psychology, like how do we add in the, the, the layer of time? Right. Cause how I many, like you, you guys use that phrase a lot, but that St. Paul thing of love keeps no record of wrong. Right. When we enter Kairos together, when we enter the deep now where there are no records of wrong, right. There's only love. There's only mutuality. Right, so wherever three or more are gathered, right, there I shall be. So, getting to that is both, you know, powerful, beautiful, and tricky. And the moment we kick out into our records of wrong, right, we've created another karmic loop. So, if we engage in this practice, we can go through our relational backlog, and we can use the experience of enoughness, love, belonging in those states to then revisit past trauma and release it. And if we can release it without reanimating the stories and kicking back into the dynamics, then we can flush it from our system. And again, Rick Doblin talks about it. He's like, memories aren't simply a scrapbook we take off the shelf, look at and put back. We take them off the shelf, we look at them, and then we rewrite them again. And then we put it back. So you can literally go through that experience. You can then, once you've done that, and this is not like cleanly linear, it'll you kind of jump around, but then you can go into um, not just your biographical relational stories, but some form of gender 
dynamic. So like the masculine, the feminine. And this would, you know, this is cis heteronormative, but for anybody in any any other style of relationship, I think you can, you know, generally speaking, pairs will take on those kind of roles or energetics. Um, and if you've ever done eye gazing, right? I mean, I think even in like academic studies, 70% of people doing eye gazing experience shape shifting of the partner they're looking at of some kind. Of course, in the academic studies, they don't venture guesses as to why, right? <laughs> but let's just say that if you're in extended tantric space, low light, altered state kind of experiences, you can often experience your lover um, shifting, right? And different aspects or elements. So it can be the, you know, and sometimes they're spooky. Sometimes they're not romantic. Sometimes it can be, you know, the rapist, the murderer, the lecher, the pervert, the the monster, that you know, the slut, the whore, the angel. You you name it, right? You can sort of just flicker through all the archetypes, and you're like, holy smokes! Like the two of us are having sex, making love, doing whatever we're doing. But in fact, it feels like we're holding or experiencing um, the entire catalog of the masculine feminine dance through time. And that can be super, I mean, if you don't balk, if you don't freak out, and again, anytime there's a freak out, anytime you collapse into narrative, boom, you're out. But if you can stay in the center of it, just descending, 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 that is for sure a layer to go through. And and in fact, my partner, um, Julie, uh, a year ahead of me too, was experiencing the imbalances and the suffering and the vulnerabilities of the feminine in this space. And she, and, and she was doing her best to like name it as she was experiencing. She's like, I think there's a big reckoning coming. I think there's an awful lot of feminine pain um, that needs to be expressed. That need, and and it, was, it was curious because we didn't know. And she was just feeling her way into that descriptor. But... It's things like that. It's you, you start getting into the archetypal psychosexual dynamics that are not just about your life together. There's something deeper and more timeless. So you're kind of in that realm of mythopoetics. And like dipping into morphic res resonance or yeah. the collective consciousness of all yeah. females ever. Yeah. And again, that requires um, strength and grace and wisdom to hold without having it spin you out anyway, really, and to stay in the eye of the, the cyclone, right? And not flinch. And then ultimately there's, there's levels of even deeper, you know, non-human and or timeless archetypes of like original man, original woman, and then potentially, you know, yeah, I would just say non-human archetypal mm. energies. And, and so then you're dancing, you know, then you're sort of sky dancing and you're, and you're up in the realm of the gods and then boobity, 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 boo, you know, back to me and you back to Monday morning, back to school buses and lunches and cleaning. Right. So, so the ability to, right, to integrate that stuff into the householder's path, right. Can be really beautiful because I mean, let's face it. Right. I mean, I mean, life's a bitch. Work is hard. Uh, the nitty gritty um, wears us all down and trying to make a life together um, is a lot of withdrawals from the, from the energetic bank account and to have a way to make love, to have a way to restock our reserves is profoundly, um, profoundly useful and beneficial. And then there's, there's one other element with like, as you find your way into 
hierogamy, like holy smokes, this isn't just about bumping uglies, right? This is about a gateway to expanded information, insight, and inspiration. There isn't, you know, and we talked about like the post-conventional monogamy, not the traditional bed death one. Then you're like, wow, um, what we're doing together is no longer fucking. What we're doing together is we're saying, hey, we're two primates with neocortexes and spinal columns connected to erogenous zones. <laughs> and if we learn to hook these up, we create a time-traveling space egg, right, that lets us surf the fucking universe together. And that was, by the way, that was Crowley's big insight, was literally that. The working of LAM, L-A-M, was something that he and one of his consorts discovered in like 1917 by accident, <laughs> which is a whole other story, right? And so you're like, oh shit. So you're my like galactic fucking space captain. Like, why would I be looking to pick some girl up at the TGI Fridays? <laughs> it, it would take a year to get you up to speed. And I'm not even sure you could hang if we got there. So rather than the notion of like, oh, I'm in, in committing to this relationship, I'm missing out on novelty. I'm missing out on pleasure. I'm missing out on sensation. You're like, oh no, this is a totally different category of experience. And the bar for, you know, back to sport climbing versus high altitude climbing, the bar for who gets to do this is so high that it, it, it instantly takes all the FOMO of just, you know, casual novelty seeking sexuality off the table. You're like, the thing we do is utterly transpersonal. And so there becomes a way to cherish and deeply appreciate, right? The stability and the reliability of, hey, you finished my sentence. Hey, we can coil ropes. You fix lines. You know where all your stuff goes. You don't lose your shit. And we can go to the high ground because it's the view from the high ground that is what lights us up, mm. right? Not just, yeah. can we monkey around on climbing holes? Yeah, that's fucking fantastic. Well, you you definitely have my interest uh, beyond peaked. Let's talk about some of the how-tos. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, and in fact, I just jotted this down for the first time. I've been thinking of it in my head for a while. Um, but basically, what is the sort of uh, hedonic engineering matrix? What are the kind of the tools, the interventions, the activities that you can use in a way that is sort of open source config configurable? So it's, it's the idea is not... Um, that this is the way it's these are this is a toolkit and here is a way of thinking of combining these things for different effects and results right so i mean the first is you know basically we know that um as far as states mapping states of consciousness right that kind of 21st century normal right is typically high beta wave neuroelectric activity high default mode network rumination, I'm spinning out, thinking about myself, talking, talking to myself, a lot of prefrontal cortical activity, typically stress hormones. So norepinephrine, cortisol, right? I'm kind of in that forever triggered fight, flight, hypervigilance response. Typically low oxygenization, oxygenation, poor air exchange, right? So I've got a lot of CO2 kind of build up in my lungs. I'm not fully oxygenated. Um, my, my posture, I'm often slumped, kind of shoulders rolled. Everything we do is forwards and collapsed, right? Versus back, um, you know, often low testosterone, et cetera. Um, you can kind of go down the list, probably poor vagal nerve tone, et cetera. And that's most of us, most of the time, it's like deconditioned zoo animals grinding it out 
in traffic and working desks and that kind of stuff. So you're like, okay, so we know that. We know what that set of parameters discloses as far as our lived experience, how it feels to be alive in that state. And then you're like, okay, but a lot of fun stuff happens, right? In alpha and theta wave activity. That's you know generally calming meditation into deep, hypnagogic spaciness and spaciousness. We know that, you know, dopamine is generally fun and sits us up and makes us pay attention. Endorphins uh, typically do the same. Anandamide, the endogenous endocannabinoid, right? These things are pleasure producing, pain reducing, often cognition enhancing um, as, you know, as with the neuroelectric stuff. We know that, you know, um, tryptamines, you know, in our, in our nervous system and our brains are, are righteous. We know that fascial integration and open spine and pelvic mobility do, you know, are, are positives. We know all these things. So you're basically like, okay, now how do we steer stuff over there? So you could start with a daily practice of orgasmic meditation right? Which is just a 15 minute practice of stimulant. And again, cis heteronormative, so adapt as needed. Um, but you could basically say, okay, on a daily basis, hell or high water for the sake of sexual fitness, not for romance, right? We commit to 15 minutes of stimulating the female partner's clitoris as lightly as possible, as slowly as possible for 15 minutes without expectation of reciprocity or foreplay, right? Or climax. So this is purely a nervous system sensitization practice, as well as whatever positive neurochemical cascade it triggers. And there's some research, and I don't think Nicole has uh, published this yet, but she's been on it for a couple of years. And I'm super curious as to her results, because they had a thesis that after three months sustained of that, that a woman becomes turned on, which was kind of their placeholder category for a woman who is basically not in a hypervigilant response and is basically able to express her full true self, not unlike an MDMA mm. experience, that that actually becomes a sort of new normal for a woman after this. Now, I haven't seen the definitive research, but it's that's the intriguing thesis. Okay. Right? So you say that. So that basically in that. And also for the male in this situation, if you think about guys, um, you know, since the age of 12 to 14, Right? Most guys have been neurologically encoded and imprinted on harder, faster, harder, faster, right? You know, basically grip it and beat off like a fucking monkey until orgasm as fast as possible. And the more aroused I get, the harder and faster I do the thing, right? Which if you look at most low level pornography is still in play. So mm -hmm. we're getting it visually encoded, all these kind of things. And the practice of that orgasmic meditation practice is slower, softer, which is actually a mind fuck for a guy. So you have a partner that's appearing to get aroused. What is, I want to go harder, faster. No, slower, softer, slower, softer, which in itself, because I mean, people will often ask, well, what's in it for the dude on this one? Well, what's in it for the dude is two things. One, you're going to rewire that overwhelmingly strong imprint. And number two, you're basically, you know, giving your partner the ability to sort of rise up the escalator of the building of their arousal so that you will start on the second floor or the third floor of their arousal and sensitivity in a way that's fundamentally different than 15 minutes of you doing your signature special moves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you even last that long 
I mean, yeah. most dudes don't, right? So, yeah. so the idea of just that, then you can engage in um, edge play um, to bring your partner close to climax. And this, this works both directions. So you can take turns doing this. And when you're ready, you can basically, um, what we would call the 52.1 protocol. So, so I'll, I'll back up for a second, say, set the scene. So beautiful, clean, aesthetically dialed room, um, some form of showman or, or altar, like a focal point that is often at the foot of the bed, right? Candles, good music, you know, just, just dial your space, vibe it out and have beautiful transformational music, ideally with super fucking funky drops. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so you then, you know, you're riding, you, you've got the environment and the scene set, low light candles, music, um, and, and significance, right? Aesthetics. It can just be Pythagoras 101. It doesn't need to get highly ritualized or Wiccan. <laughs> you know, it can just be, hey, pairs, you know, two candles with a focal point. It can be threes. It can be ones. It can be squares, circles, triangles, like just arrange stuff in a way that is aesthetically and geometrically balanced and it'll do the thing. Okay. Right. And the idea of like, don't, ape or imitate other people's juju don't put stuff up there that's not yours that hasn't come to you authentically right start minimalist all right go go zen right but but use it as an anchor point to hold and the same comes with body adornment right just think of it all as sacred geometries all we're trying to do is emphasize and and, and align sacred geometries so let's let's well i'll back up to the preconditions for um for a woman, the what we're trying to do, if you remember to that, the idea of the hedonic matrix, is we're trying to turn on all of the neurophysiology that we know leads to positive, non-ordinary states. So for, actually for both partners, really, um, nipple clamps are a simple way to do two things. One is they, they're slightly painful. And, and actually, when you turn, when you take them off, they can become quite painful as so the blood all rushes back in. So that is a endorphin stimulator. So you're like, that's interesting. They also, any nipple stimulation stimulates oxytocin production. So you're like, okay, so now we're going to have deeper pair bonding. And when we get to arousal, there's, the, there's a four to one pain to pleasure tolerance close to orgasm. So at some point, you can hotwire pleasure pain, right? So you're like, okay, so do that. The next is vagal nerve tone and pelvic floor engagement. And so back to evolution being super efficient. It just is what it is, but you have to get comfortable with basically ass play and hygiene. So the same way you wouldn't smoke a cigar and vomit and then go kiss someone, right? You would prepare the orifice for his desired erotic activity. You do the same with your back door. But the reality is, is that, is that, our vagal nerve. I mean, effectively, we're still old school. We're worms with tubes. We're mouths and asses. Right? You get get rid of our limbs. Like way back in the day, this is what we are at a root level. And our vagal nerve is the wandering nerve that starts in our brain, goes to our heart, ends at our root. And it's responsible for everything from blood pressure to senses of euphoria to, I mean, all sorts of biological regulation. It is pretty much the most primal metronome of tuning our system, of tuning our neurophysiology possible. And when you engage it, so Anish Seth, I think he's in, uh, in Princeton, he's a gastroenterologist. 
wrote a funny article where he even called it pooforia. Yeah, you, you, you take a big dump and you actually, you, you get a drop in blood pressure, you get goosebumps and it can feel surprisingly good, right? And you're like, well, that's your vagal nerve tone. And vagal nerve tone, most researchers these days are talking about like loving kindness meditation or even like electrical stimulation, almost like little pacemakers to do this kind of stuff. Well, vagal nerve is also goggling, singing, gagging, and taking a dump. Mm. And you're like, huh. That's, those are, those are a way lower tech, right? Don't need anything yeah. fancy. Don't need anything imaginal. I can just actually do these things. So we'll come back to this stuff in a second, but basically just say prep work. If you choose and you're in a state where it's allowed, by the way, you want a physician, you know, you, uh, Dan Savage talks about a good giving game, right? Okay. For, for sexual partners, right? He's yeah. like, those are the three G's. I think you need a physician that's the three C's, which is connected, uh, curious and courageous, so if you have a doctor who can help support you uh, along these lines, then you can have access to some of the pharmacology that can also be a helpful adjunct Okay. to all these things. <laughs> so those are my disclaimers. And let's just say you're in a, you either have a medical card or you're in a state where recreational is allowed. Um, cannabinoids aka, you know, um, are helpful because they engage the anandamide in your system. And so that's one of the checklists on the matrix, right? You're like, oh, anandamide. Cool. Endorphins, oxytocin. Cool. Vagal nerve tone. Cool. Right. You can you sort of see how you're pick, mixing and matching and you're building a programmed state experience via sexual fitness. So let's just say you start with um, high grade sativa. You don't want to be in like couch lock, right? You want to be energized and, and awake. Um, interestingly, ancient Greeks used to use uh, cannabinoids to increase uterine contractions in childbirth. Uh, there is some anecdotal and some evidentiary support that it increases the duration and intensity of women's orgasms as a result of that. And, you know, it's obviously it's sort of aphrodisiacal sensory um, affects are well known. That's a... Uh... Yeah, personal experience, N equals one, mm -hmm. confirm that for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it feels like the orgasm just lasts forever, myself included, but my wife most certainly yeah. feels that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and then to say nothing of shutting off default mode network, shifting states of consciousness, consciousness between waking self every day and, and the sacred practice you're engaging in. And just one other sidebar on the 15 minutes daily. The beautiful thing about 15 minutes daily for anybody in a householder's path, particularly with children, et cetera, is like, when do you have time for like an hour to two hour throwdown? Not that often, but when do you have time for 15 minutes? Infinitely more often, right? And so the idea of just spinning the flywheel, spinning the flywheel is, pro is a profound ha lifestyle hack for re-engaging intimacy, et cetera. And, 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 you know, just, and for anybody that's like, oh, we don't get to have sex much anymore. We used to like rabbits and now we don't. And it, we're always too tired, et cetera. If you're waiting to the end of your day, that's the other thing. Men's testosterone tends to sag substantially after 8 PM. So you, you're, the dude's T count is down. You're both exhausted. And most people think of alcohol as an aphrodisiac. So you're like two drinks in low testosterone and fatigued at the end of the day. My partner and I are zero for like a hundred <laughs> at nailing end of the day lovemaking. We're like, ah, fuck it. I'd rather sleep. I love you. I'll catch you in the morning. Yeah. Right. So afternoon delight is a key time, right? The idea of like peak, there's a spike in testosterone upon waking. It then slowly degrades over the morning. And then there's another blip in early afternoon, which is hence that rock and roll soon skyrockets in flight. Right? <laughs> so if you can schedule, however you have to jimmy your schedule for mid afternoon, early to mid afternoon, or at the very least 
you know, dinner time to early evening, not the end of the day, you will radically change how you feel about each other along with that 15 minutes work in because that will create tension and polarity as well. So most people are judging the strength of their relationship and their amount of love on the worst lie of the ball possible versus how else do we do this? And then just one other thing on, on scheduling and calendaring. Um, you've got your daily practice, your 15 minutes. You've got, you probably, let's just say, schedule three actual lovemaking sessions a week. Um, to do, go Tuesdays and Thursdays for, say, 60 to 90 minutes. And then give yourself a Sabbath half day of like two to three hours if you can. And then also you can schedule, you know, what the English call dirty weekends, right? Which is going, going away to fuck, right? You can, you can, you time that with your peak ovulation for your woman. So most guys don't even know that women's arousal changes rapidly. They might've heard of PMS and they might know when to duck when the plates come flying their way. <laughs> Other than that, most dudes are fucking clueless. And typically the week after a woman's period is the week of her peak ovulation. She's got higher testosterone, progesterone, and all these kind of things that make it make her far more open to hot and heavy, you know, physical engaged sex. The week prior to her period is often her most fallow period. And she's, if she's available at all, it will require much more sensitivity, much more touch, much more extended foreplay. Most dudes are like, well, I was rocking your world two weeks ago, baby, what happened? And they have no idea of that cycle. So understanding a woman's cycle, both obviously for her first and then for her partner, essential. And then you can time your once a month real blowouts for that week, right? Mm. And really time it. And I mean, it's simple again, I mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy for anybody doing the householder's path. So a fun way to do this, where you're also hacking dopamine, is to do like hot wire roulette, where... Um, where you don't have to stay overnight, particularly if you have kids, right? It's a pain in the ass to figure all this stuff out um, and having overnight care and all that kind of stuff. So instead of going to a dinner and a movie, you do hot wire roulette, you, you select four and five star hotels in your town, you hit the button and you get a screaming deal on you don't know which and and, gen and you read the reviews, do the normal shit, but like mm -hmm. you, you can have a high degree, like 90% or, or plus you know, approval ratings. You get your hotel and instead of dinner and a movie, you just go there and have a three to four hour special session at your partner's peak time. And then you come home and the babysitter's none the wiser, et cetera. You've just rocked the scene and had a meaningful reboot together. So that's all back to calendaring. Now we're back to setting the scene and what we're going to do. So music, lights, camera, action, uh, cannabis, if it's up your alley, sativa, and you know, basically a high, high grade, highly embodied energizing sativa, if you want to get particular, um, then you engage in the 15 minutes of preparatory practice with nipple clamps and butt plugs. And for guys, there's the aneros, which is a, uh, which, you know, right. Which is a prostatic stimulator. And cause the reality is, is that anal, Access gives you access for the men, the prostate, and the pelvic floor, and the vagal nerve. So you're doing all of those things in one. For the woman, it's pelvic floor, increased pressure on the G-spot, and vagal nerve. Right. So you're just like, okay, so all those things are online. You then edge to the point of near orgasm. Right. Then the lying down partner, in this case we're, we're describing the woman, will begin a 52.1 protocol, which is 50 hyperventilations. So what you're doing is looking to hyperventilate and blow off CO2 because you're now you're, you do a Wim Hof style breath hold practice, right? So now you're engaging in that. So 50 hyperventilations, like you're blowing out birthday candles, right? You should get tingly, right? You're blowing off your CO2, which will increase the amount of time you can hold your breath. 
Then if you have access, whether this is like boost canisters or whatever, you know, like pure sports oxygen, if you have medical grade, back to your courageous connected doctor, if you have medical grade oxygen, you can be doing medical grade oxygen and you take a couple of breath holds of pure oxygen, which will super oxygenate your red, your red blood cells. So now I've got max oxat and depleted CO2. So I should be able to hold my breath for a really fucking long time. At that point, and again, this is not medical advice. If this is not <laughs> ethically, morally, give me the juicy stuff. I don't give a shit about the yeah, yes, no, disclaimer, no, disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. I get it. If, if for any reason this is ethically, legally, morally, culturally, socially, professionally not kosher for you where you are, where you live, just don't do that part. That said, you then, so by the way, you've, you pick a ripper of a song. You've started your breath work at the beginning of that song. You've done your 50 breaths. You've done your two oxygen saturations. You then take an inhalation of pure nitrous oxide. Okay. And you then hold it. You take it in as if it's your first breath on this earth, the breath of a newborn. And you hold it for as long as you possibly can until you exhale it as your dying breath. Okay, now in that space, A, the fucking drop is about to happen in the music. B, you can pop the nipple clamps because then suddenly all the blood rushes back at once and you're now in a state of peak arousal and you've hotwired pleasure pain. So now all additional sensation, whether it is initially pleasurable or painful, all gets registered as pleasure. And whatever you were doing as far as stimulation, level it up one notch. So if it was fingers, it can be cocks. If it was toys, it could be this. If it, you know, Whatever it would be, just... Just bump it up to the next level. And your partner is basically going to be slingshotted into a space of zero G weightlessness, right? In the information layer where they can think anything they want about anything they can think of with a 300 IQ for three to 10 minutes. And many people who experience this equate it to a 5 MEI level experience. Wow. Yeah. So, with household materials, right? So this is where instead of like the anarchist cookbook, you know, like how to build bombs with kitchen sink materials, this is the alchemist's cookbook, right? This is how do we scale radical self-initiation, right? And what typically is is perceived and received in that space is usually just spot fucking on and perfect for where you are in your life and what you need to hear or know. And, and so that becomes um now now if you want to that that's the base level practice so that's just the simplest program now you can add to that so as you get comfortable you can again back to you know if you want to uh add periodically like once a month once a quarter once a year some version of substance enhanced I mean, this was all mildly substance enhanced, but if you want to add to that, you can add oxytocin ketamine nasal spray, right? That will increase pair bonding. That will also increase a pleasantly dissociative space. Um, and in fact, we can, I suppose we can just talk about like, we want to get super like technical, but very instructionally technical. Sure. For a sec. Okay. Yeah. So basically now you've got the basics and then you can add um, any form of different breathwork, different compounds, uh, different tools and toys. And then they can create different initiatory experiences. So if you think about, let's just take something like nitric oxide, 
So nitric oxide is the neurotransmitter that runs between the crosses the blood-brain barrier. Herb Benson at Harvard University wrote a great book called The Breakout Principle. He called it the bliss molecule, right? It's basically what flushes out stress and what brings in all the kind of more transformative state experiences. Um, it is also a vasodilator, right? It shows up in uh, everything from, you know, be, you know, so basically you're like, okay, nitric oxide is interesting, both as a shifter of consciousness, a transporter molecule, as well as a vasodilator, which obviously is nice for sexuality. So you're like the mild, medium, spicy columns is mild. If you're interested in boosting nitric oxide, eat, you know, eat your beets and your arugula. So dietary enhancement. Medium would be take things like specifically concentrated nitric oxide supplements like Neo 40, which is actually based here in Austin as well, right? So, okay. so you can you can supplement and they even have test strips. So you can test your resting saliva nitric oxide levels. And most of us are low, lower than we'd want. And you can just have that raise your baseline prior to sexuality. It'll increase engorgement, it'll increase sensitivity, and it will increase again, shift, you know, it will facilitate state shifts in consciousness. And then maximum, Viagra and Cialis, right? And so most Taoist sexual practice, the al alchemical Taoism, you know, there's a reason why bears, livers, and rhino horns and all those things are so fetishized in Asia and China in particular is because, you know, if you go back to it, most of it is always sex magicians were like, how do I maintain and keep an erection as long as possible so that I can then facilitate the other alchemical stuff? So this is different than being a horn dog with a boner, right? This is actually saying, hey, I'm actually going to, and this works for women as well at lower dosages, right? You can actually increase vasodilation and engorgement for both parties. And then also for a man, you can increase passive erection. Because, I mean, if you think about most men, how much of our bandwidth during sex is dedicated to getting and keeping an erection? our movement patterns, where our minds are, how we fuck, all of it is just fundamentally down at that base level. And so many women are like, hey, honey, look at me, slow down. Like, what if I want to hug you? You're like, ah, no, can't, must. Mm, 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 mm. You know, I'm a little fuck rabbit because I have to. And if my dick went limp, that would be fucking mortifying. So the idea there is to say, okay, what if, A, I can just boost nitric oxide for all the reasons we discussed, and I can take that whole bandwidth offline. And I can now go slowly. We can now engage in positions and arrangements that I would normally not be able or willing to do if it was just pure friction-based play, mm. right? And now I can focus on breath. Now I can focus on eye contact. Now we can focus on the subtle energetics or information that is disclosed in these experiences, right? So that's, a, that, that's one band, right? Um, endorphins, we've already spoken about. Any form of pleasure pain close to, right, or close to climax. So you can start with, you know, people in the BDSM community use, fascinatingly, um, they do, they call it sensation play, right? But it's like little pinwheel rollers and, you know, obviously obvious things like cat and nine tails and flogging and paddling and all this kind of stuff. But I mean, some of it is literally identical equipment to what they use for children with sensory integration disorders, and that kind of stuff. You're like literally like rolling like a pizza pinwheel, like up and down your arms, feathers, like any and all of those things, which increase sensitivity and awareness, right? All the way up to straight up things that would be normally painful, right? So you, you have that whole spectrum. Um, the oxytocin, mild, would be kissing, sucking, cuddling, eye gazing, right? Middling 
could be uh, like the nipple clamps or nipple suctions. And then maximum could be the straight up nasal spray. Mm. So you realize, oh, there's this, there's a spectrum of how, what we can play with, what are the mechanisms of action and how do we combine them based on our interest, our intensity, our value systems, our availability, whatever. But you realize, oh, it's, it's neat if you include these things well. Testosterone, same thing for men and women, right? But a lot of, I mean, everybody thinks of testosterone for guys, but obviously testosterone is a huge part of women's sexual arousal as well. You can do the lifestyle stuff, you know, hot and cold contrast therapies, explosive weightlifting, plyometrics, et cetera, like stuff that everybody kind of knows. That's good, but generally only responsible for about a plus or minus 10% variation and what you can get out of it. You could also do topical gel, right? So, so um, I think Dave Ashbury mentioned this about his wife at one point, but the idea of like topical gel on a woman's clitoris and labia, right? Can create meaningful anguish. Now, obviously you're playing with hormones back to the three C doctor, physician oversight, don't do stupid shit, all that. And periodically for specific reasons and particularly for, you know, actually even I'll back that off. I'll say DHEA as a supplement is probably our mm. medium one. DHEA is a precursor to both estrogen and testosterone. Many studies have shown that in particularly in women over 40, it can have a positive uptick as they metabolize it into testosterone. Now for guys, it's not quite that simple and you might end up metabolizing into estrogen and it depends on what else you've got going on in your system. But that idea of like a dietary precursor supplement that will increase your bioavailability when you'd like to do it. And then let's say the spicy one would be actual testosterone, gels, injections, intramuscular, whatever it would be, and playing with that in appropriate ratios and proportions. Women typically has, have a tenth the amount of testosterone, but it is very powerful at those levels. So guys don't overprescribe, et cetera. And there's obviously all sorts of pros and cons on sustained um, hormonal supplementation versus natural. But if you're literally engaging in those kind of levels of, of chem sex, then on the visionary level, on the visionary substances, you know, the base level would be the kind of uh, CBD THC, right? To be activating your endocannabinoid system. And the same way I just described the vagal nerve as this ancient, ancient, you know, metronome of our neurophysiology, the endocannabinoid system is equally unknown and equally potent and is arguably our secondary immune system. And it's the only system in our whole body that actually signals backwards and forwards from organs to brain and, and, and the other way. And it's responsible for, you know, dozens of biological, you know, basically wellness in our system. So you're activating that. If you want to go to the middle level, you could consider um, GHB, right? Which is a highly sensory um, sexuality boosting compound that was available in the market and is subsequently not so much. And at the right dose, it's really fucking safe. It's at the higher dose where you run into real issues. But it is something that is, I mean, Rob Wolf fucking talked about it as like one of the greatest compounds ever made. Mm -hmm. It was a bodybuilder drug for many years. Yeah. You know, increases growth hormone when you sleep, increases deep sleep. Yeah. Like it's fantastic stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and then obviously, you know, has also been vilified as the date rape drug because when people G out or take too much, they can end up in a passive non-responsive state that could be, you know, massively exploited, right? So back to safe, high trust environments, et cetera. And then on the high end, you can explore, you know, Anne and Sasha Shulgin, right? Were a longtime couple that explored all of their lovemaking um, via psychedelically enhanced experiences. Um, and they experienced, um, in particular, I mean, obviously MDMA is well-known. Um, I think it's actually overhyped as an erotic drug. It's typically a sensory and emotionally connected drug. I have, I have a hard time on 
a breakthrough dose of MDMA even getting hard. Oh yeah, because they're all serotonergic and, and yeah. serotonin literally means soft tone. <laughs> <laughs> right? There you go. So, so yes, which also brings us back to the ED supplements. Now there's a huge caution as far as blood pressure, drop, dropping blood pressure and those stimulants. So anytime you do with vasodilation and rampy amphetamine-based compounds or anything else, caveat mTOR, that shit's on you. You know, and there's a number, and you're Peter Sellers back in the day, I think Peter Sellers died, like, you know, doing uh, amyl nitrates in some form back in the seventies, mm. you know, you know, banging one of his, one of his wives or girlfriends, I don't remember which. So like that is you're into the red zone and know what you're doing is the simplest one. But uh, MDA, sassafras, is renowned to be more erotically functional than MDMA. We had, I've only experienced that once. I got it uh, when I was living in the Bay Area and my wife and I went to a two-hour couple's Thai massage and it was fucking psychedelic. Mm. It was so special. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I felt shit unlock, you know, through that physical connection, but I was, I, was, I mean, I had a dude. And even though I, I <laughs> consider myself um, on the spectrum of, of sexuality, uh it was it was fucking erotic like it was crazy to uh -huh. me i was like wow like it was i was turned on no doubt about it uh-huh yeah yeah i mean and, and that also i mean that that highlights another question is what is life force what is the energy we experience that we cultivate sexuality sexually but then there's also what is love and for most of us we do the same way we get pleasure pain wires crossed and you can use that to your advantage um there's also the question of are we crossing the wires of eros like erotic sexualized energy and agape you know a sort of brotherly christ consciousness mm. love and oftentimes when we experience agape or any form of communal love or something that's just kind of pure um yeah just that um the only somatic marker we have for it is sexual arousal so it often it's, it's why like folks in evangelical churches or Tony Robbins events, or you name it, anything that's profound and inspirational and cathartic often end up pairing up and banging mm. <laughs> versus being able to hold it and being like, oh, no, no, I, 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 my, my familiar reference points are sexual, but this is actually distinct and a different thing. Um, so yeah, just to finish the Ann and Sasha Shulgin one, um, their all-time favorite was 2CB. They said it was their primary erotic psychedelic. And you can do the same, you know, they also made a mention of like museum dose or IMAX dose, right? Not, you don't want to be, you know, floor warbling, walls melting, dissociated psychedelic states. Um, but if you're into threshold enhanced experiences combined with these psychosexual practices, combined with the peak states that you're cultivating, right, by slingshotting each other, then you can get to some very interesting realms and domains. And that's where you can kind of get into some of the archetypal stuff uh, and the trauma release. So one of the interesting things you can do in this space, I mean, A, short half-life compounds are generally an easier fit, right? If you sign up for six to 10 hours, that's a rare, heavy, that's a high bandwidth, high commitment kind of play. But for instance, the you know cannabis can wear off in you know, 90 to 120 minutes. Um, the nitrous oxide oxygen breath work is literally 15 to 30 minutes. And by the way, uh, MIT, their department of anesthesiology did a fascinating study on the impact of nitrous oxide. And what they found was that it was putting people for three to 12 minutes afterwards into a double amplitude waking delta state. 
Oh, wow. Which is very rare and only shows up in certain super esoteric, like Tibetan Dzogchen meditation, <clears throat> meditative practices. And like it's not in Vipassana, it's not in TM, it doesn't show up in anything that most folks are aware of and do. It's high tech contemplative states with a lot of practice. And double amplitude waking deltas, basically, it's like backdoor lucid dreaming. You end up in a complete high ideation, information saturated space where everything is reach out and grab it. Uh, accessible and useful. So just to go back, so, so now we're, we're playing these games. Uh, the half-life game is, is important because, you know, the same with the oxytocin ketamine, right? That can leave you, lift you up, give you a profound state-shifting experience where you can explore all kinds of things, make all kinds of sense, come back down together. And you're sort of, you know, you're back down cooking dinner in, in an hour, completely functional. So what you're saying is if you, if you combine these things, if you combine all these evolutionary drivers, we talked about that kind of judo move, right? Of like hacking the inputs. And you say, we're going to combine respiration, embodiment, music, substances, sexuality. What you're going for is instead of a long wavelength experience, you know, the 12 hours and shoot the moon, and maybe you spend like 60 to 90 minutes in really generative space, but you spend the, the ramp up and the come down just trying to navigate, you know, what's in your system and, and have a nice time as you manage body fatigue. Instead, you can compress the wavelength into, you know, 30 minutes, 90 minutes, two hours, and then go for amplitude. How high up into the information are we getting? And then how am I not fumbling the fucking football in the end zone when I come back? Because that remembering, the anamnesis experience of like, oh shit, yes, everything is self-evident and I remember all of this. I've been here before. This is fucking my true nature, self, access to source, whatever you are experiencing. Then it slips through your fingers, gets away on the way back down, right? And so not fumbling the football is the other key part. So rules and regs, we would say never more than two of those breathwork cycles in a week and stop when you're not remembering what you saw mm. and like live by that because otherwise you'll get snookered because you basically, I mean, as I said, you know, what we're talking about here is, is hot wiring the entire human arousal and reward system. And it works. Like it's the craziest thing. We just did this as like curious homework. We're like, huh, gee, I wonder like what we did was just pay attention to the research in all of these domains and then start putting them in like a bingo card and we're like, hey, that research goes here. This goes there. This goes here. What happens if you put them all together? I don't know. Let's try. Maybe it'll work. <laughs> and, and it works better than you can possibly fucking imagine. To the point where you're like, how is this not on the cover of Time magazine? Like, how is this not being like trumpeted from the rooftops? So, so in that, the goal is to get, you know, back to hat tip to Crowley, the, the crazy uncle. Um, he had a great phrase. He called it erotocomatose lucidity. Right, which erato, the sexual, comatose, you're spaced the fuck out. Lucidity, you're still actually clear as a bell. So how do you get to that state wherein your waking consciousness is offline? You are fully engaged and, and satiated with sexual arousal, orgasmic energy, and yet you're able to make clean sense of what's going on. And that state is a profoundly generative one. Mm. Well, fuck, I'm beyond interested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and so, so there's, I mean, I'll just, I'll just lay out cause I've never done this before publicly, but I'll just say the rest of the steps. So the rest of the steps are now you can engage in protocols and the specific protocols, the sex toys you would want, uh, um, good vibrations is a great store. It's a women owned 
cooperative based in San Francisco. So they're sex positive and, and super grounded, helpful, good people. Um, we're actually trying to put together some shopping carts, like a mild, medium, spicy shopping cart so that people don't have to be like, what the hell do I do now? Um, so that's coming and I'll send, you know, send you the links when we have. Oh yeah. Awesome. Um, but basically there's a couple of things that you can do. Cause I mean, if you think about wild open-ended sexuality, even pornography, right? You think low level San Fernando Valley porn, right? It's really debased. There's very little noble or sacred masculine. There's a lot of diminishment of the feminine. It's, it's often just tragic and painful to watch, right? But in there, they are actually paradoxically intuiting what are esoteric sex magic rituals and initiations. So things like um, a woman being taken from behind while providing oral sex to another man, right? That's, that's a fantasy play. Well, if you look at it and you actually understand it, you're like, oh, that is vagal nerve stimulation, right? The whole gagging and all that kind of stuff, right? Vagal nerve stimulation with stimulation from behind, et cetera. Double penetration, same thing, right? All of these, all of these things are actually potentially tantric initiatory practices for, I'm imagining, for a woman these days. That's incredibly high risk to say, a, to even admit, you know, fear, slut-shaming, social norming, all that kind of stuff. A, to even admit I might be curious. And B, what's the likelihood of me being able to arrange a social situation where this is safe and okay? Safe that my current partner and a other known male can hold me, can, it, can lead me through that experience without collapsing into their own insecurity or their own projections that I won't, that it won't destabilize the relationship, a thousand things that I won't be taken advantage of, you know, any number of risks. So most women just opt to just firewall that off without realizing, Hey, this is my body. This is my pleasure. This is my heart and my mind. And these tools in the realm of sexual fitness or sexual yoga can become profoundly powerful in healing and unlocking. So the idea of, again, what can you do with sex, sex toys that can simulate with one loving partner, can simulate what would normally be a much higher risk multi-person engagement, right? Is a profound way to say, hey, we all deserve the full spectrum of sensation and feeling and experience. We may not opt to do this in 3D with others. Yeah. Right, that can be a profoundly beautiful way for people who are opting on the side of two of us walking this road together to still open and expand the magical, mystical, initiatory experiences. And so, if you combine all these things with some of those tools, and there's even um, I think it's Vixkin. I think they might even be here in Austin, but they have sheaths. So basically, a guy can have effectively a very lifelike quality dildo that they can wear themselves, which expands their size and it's like snugs up under your nuts it's actually highly functional so it's almost like the rubber arm experiments right where you <laughs> right you can rub the rubber arm but if you but you're feeling you're being touched and you like you it creates the illusion right of that's my arm mm. right you especially when you add uh state shifting practices and activities you can offer your partner right the experience of another different lover but it's actually you which is mind-bendingly interesting, right? You can have, there are harnesses where you can have a dildo and your cock. So you can engage in double penetration with a partner 
but it's just you. And yet you are looking down and seeing the other cock, not yours. Mm. Right? Mind, so it's above yours. Yeah. Okay. Mind bending, like like psychosomatically, completely transformative. Right? You can mount a dildo on the wall and have your partner engage with a mirror and you're looking and you're like, oh, subject, object. Like here we all are playing these games and you can open your partner into the wanton woman, which is arguably her deeply open temple priestess. So now you're unlocking unapologetic pleasure and now you can actually go back. So now back to trauma healing. If you can initiate your partner and each other, but initiate your partner into that, the wanton woman, right? Then you, she can realize, oh, this is my timeless turn on outside of time and space, right? Now we're into Kairos and Kronos. We're, we're somewhere in the deep now. And this is my full expression. Now, the oak tree was always present in the acorn. So now she can go back into her earlier sexual history. Mm. She can go back into her adolescence, high school, college, early 20s, any places where she might have not been fully seen. Inferior men and boys may have attempted to take from her sacred offering. And she can go back and she can relive, oh, well, if I am this forever and always, I was her then too. And she can then, back to the MDMA PTSD therapy, she can rewrite those memories, even rework those scripts with you as her lover holding her in that space and completely rework time, space, and history. Wow. Right? To the point where we get to make each other whole outside of time via these loving practices held in the light, right? So, and this is the thing, like if a man, so a man, all, all men want, right? I want the, I want the, you know, angel in the kitchen and the whore in the bedroom, the sort of classic whore Madonna. And, and, and they're like, oh yeah, nice. You got to pick one. And it's like, no, no, no. You can absolutely love and respect and hold and cherish your woman to the point where she can open to her full expression, which includes all of those things. And the cost, my boy, right? Is you have to be willing to tolerate a limp dick and as David Data said, you got to be able to take it up the ass to know God. And you have to be an impeccable <laughs> fucking integrity. You cannot, you cannot devolve into sex man. Like, I'm just going to turn you over and jackhammer you and call you a dirty bitch. You, like, no. You have to clarify your fucking system completely so that you are worthy of her trust. And if we can do those things, then, then the, world, the world opens for all of us and we can take that love and take that healing back into our work in the world, back into our children, back into our creativity um, and become whole humans. Fuck yeah, brother. That's absolutely beautiful. And you're putting all this into a new book that you're writing. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Recapture the Rapture. Rethinking God's sex and death for a world that's lost its mind. <laughs> that's a hell of a title <laughs> well i mean that's my sense my sense is the psychedelic revolution is going to run onto the rocks in a bunch of different ways uh, as it sort of almost has to um and that notion of the alchemist cookbook like how do we create open source scalable what's the psycho spiritual equivalent of blockchain like how do we get information so that people can initiate each other into healing wholeness and awakening radically right and and do it and do it in a way that scales and that allows as many people as possible to wake up into soul force. Because, I mean, basically all ecstatic practices, meditation, psychedelic sexuality, are all death practices. 
right? There's the ego death in psychedelics and meditation. There's the little death, la petite mort, is what the French call that lucidity after Mm -hmm. orgasm. They're all death practices, right? And so if we can use these conscious death practices to be reborn, we become twice-born humans. We become anthropos, right? And in fact, the final stage, everybody talks about the hero's journey in Joseph Campbell, right? Um, Which is you know, home away, home, the hero goes away. But like the, the notions, there's, there's several, and I know we're going long, so we might want to just split this fucker. But, but um, there's later stages of the hero's journey that most people don't know, which is the woman is temptress, reconciliation with the father and the sacred hermaphrodite, right? And so woman is temptress is, yeah, can I, like, as a man, can I control my sexual impulses? Can I not just be a skirt chasing fucking douchebag? And can I actually hold and integrate that power? And specifically, can I be wary of premature extaculation, <laughs> which is the moment I get into some high energy stuff? Do I just nut all over the place? Do I either think I'm the second coming or I go, you know, or I do stupid shit, right? Or I, or I, or I go on a manic binge overload. Can I actually manage both my attraction to sexuality and desire, but also my need for returning to the womb? And that's like smoking weed and playing video games and jerking off to porn and like you name it. Like, can I master my impulses both for desire and and just sucking at the tit, right? Mm. Of comfort and the feminine. So once I've done that, I can come online. The reconciliation with the father is the classic Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader thing, right? But it's also back to ethics versus morals. So if we've given up on conventional monogamy, right? And we're exploring open-ended, tantric, left-hand path sexuality. Reconciliation with the father means instead of being the man that I'm trying to dodge or duck or rebel against, can I realize I am my own authority? So it's going from morals, someone's telling me what to do, to ethics. It's my relationship to my actions, the true warrior's path, right? The once I've, if I have, if I don't internalize that, I'm fucking danger to myself and others. Mm. And all those 20 something hoodie bros puffing DMT at EDM shows, terrifying to me. Yeah. There is nothing that they have bowed down to that is higher than their own desires or impulses. Right. So you get those two online. And the final one is the sacred hermaphrodite. And this is where the final the sex toy, there's one called share, which is basically this, it's a two way dildo with a egg shake, like a jelly bean that goes up into the woman and she can wear it, particularly if she has a plug in. She, it can just sit in there. So there's no straps, no harnesses, no goofy aesthetics. It's very clean. And, and then a cock. And you can actually, um, she can then fuck her man while stroking him. And what this does is it completely changes where the sensations are for both of your bodies. So if you think about it, a woman's turn-on is predominantly gathered around her whole clitoris, potentially her G-spot, right? So she's used to moving her pelvis and spinal cord that way. Now the sensation is at the end of a six inch cock that she's now connected to, right? And is pressing against her clitoris. The guy is now experiencing his prostate. So suddenly your neuromotor patterns have completely reversed as well as the aesthetics. The guy is on his back, his legs are spread. The woman is together and thrusting. And you're like, whoa, what the fuck? Like this is literally not just um, aesthetically different and certainly not even just conceptually kinky. You are literally rewiring your turn on and your movement patterns to be in completely reversed roles. And then as you meet, you meet in the hermaphrodite, the man woman, and you've blended and explored, right? The swapping of energies. 
And so mm-hmm. that's the final move in the hero's journey before they come home with the gift. And so that's Hermes, the thrice great in the, in the Greek mystic tradition. It's all those things, which is, and in fact, Amanda Sage, if you know that visionary artist, she's at Burning Man and she's created a beautiful painting of Vitruvian human. Mm. Right, so it's the same sacred geometries as Leonardo's, but it actually has Burning Man painted as as the bottom of this. And I think that the notion of Vitruvian human or Anthropos that blends head and heart, that blends masculine and feminine, right, that blends all of these things together in balance, is what this sexual yoga of becoming can offer us. If we stick with it, if we if we don't flinch as we get to our woundings and our traumas, if we don't get hijacked by either the bliss fuck part or the crucifixion part because what it does is it, it lends us to both you can create you can create orgasms that can back up your nervous system you literally have like a cue of, <laughs> of like a contractions to get through you're like holy shit i didn't realize you can just program this you can that's the bliss the bliss fuck even and the, and the sort of the where you go into the information you can sort of playfully call it like the cosmic fuck tunnel you can like literally just launch each other down that road but the connection in our bodies and in our lives and in our pain is the crucifixion. It's the, here's Kairos, sacred time, here's Kronos, clock time. And to be aware and awake at that intersection, in these bodies, in this lifetime, as it fucking is, with both the incredible heart-opening potential and the utterly gutting grief and agony of it all, delivers us to Christ consciousness, delivers us to that omega point of what Teilhard de Chardin called, you know, literally, he said, you know, the second coming isn't going to be an individual, as pretty much everybody says these days. He said, it's going to actually, the body of Christ is the omega point at the end of time, which is all of us waking up together. And this is potentially a really, really fun way to get there. <laughs> it definitely, definitely is something I'm going to explore for sure in many different ways. And I can't wait for your book to come out. Do you have a proposed date by chance? Yeah, it'll be spring catalog uh, 21. Okay. So coming out next, early next winter. So it's like February, March. Phenomenal, brother. Dude, it's been fucking absolutely beautiful having you on the show and so much amazing stuff to share that I want to put into practice right now. <laughs> I got ketamine oxytocin in the fridge. It's going down. <laughs> beautiful, brother. Thank That's you it. so much, Jamie. Where can people find you online? Um, flowgenomeproject.com is an easy place or on Facebook. Uh, we, we have a... A page there as well and we do you know live events trainings do backcountry courses um we haven't figured out how to teach this stuff yet because we're just not interested <laughs> in going down that couple's road um but uh it'll be there in the book and we'll do it we'll, we'll figure out some way to get information out to sincere couples incredible brother yeah. thank you again thank you guys for tuning in to today's show with my dude jamie wheel um I hope you guys enjoyed it. I mean, it absolutely blew me away. This is one I listened to again a second time and will probably revisit uh, as his book is getting ready to launch. And I will have him back on without question because he is one of a handful of people that I know that is consistently refining himself, consistently looking to improve in all areas of his life. And he's an absolute wizard. I don't know that he'd call himself that, but um, you know, when you think of the magician archetype or the wizard archetype, constantly refining, constantly tinkering, constantly working towards creating um, magic in this world. This is the dude for that. Jamie Wheel is that dude. And uh, I highly, highly respect him. I love him as a brother, and I have learned so much from him 
Hopefully you guys have done that as well. I would refer you to comment to me uh, with any questions on Instagram at living with the Kingsburys. But at the same time, uh, we are going to be on a lack of sleep here for the next month, probably. And I will be on Instagram far less. So hopefully uh, if you do comment to me there in the DMs, I will be able to get back to you at some point. But don't look for any quick answers. I love you all. Be well. And I'll see you in a week.